Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Ed Kemper, the co-ed killer, a giant murderer and necrophiliac who stands six feet, nine inches tall and weighs around 300 pounds, a roughly Shaquille O'Neal sized serial killer, bigger than Michael Myers from the Halloween movie franchise, arguably scarier, also literally a genius, a psychopath with an IQ of roughly 145 who was able to manipulate psychiatrists at a state mental facility he was initially held in after his first two murders to being given an early release. Ed Kemper has been in prison since 1973. He likes it in there. He has no interest in leaving, or so he says. He's waived his right to a parole hearing since 1985. California inmate B52453, currently 70 years old, sits in the California State Medical Facility today in Vacaville, roughly 50 miles northeast of the San Francisco Bay. In addition to killing several family members, this monster killed a lot of strangers as well, tortured and killed animals as a kid, says he feels guilty about some of it. I'm guessing he feels guilty about none of it. The FBI's Behavioral Science Unit, uh, Behavioral Science Unit, the organization that the Netflix series Mindhunter is based on, interviewed Kemper after he turned himself into authorities and they learned a tremendous amount about the mind of a serial killer, how to track and catch future serial killers, and what red flags from someone's childhood uh, are that could lead them to becoming a serial killer from studying Ed, the co-ed killer, Kemper. This story's fucking bananas. Super, super dark. One of the craziest stories uh, I've ever looked into. Enter your own risk into the cold, super twisted, just so weird mind. The crazy deeds of Ed Kemper today on Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Uh, not doing a Martin Luther King Jr. suck today because we already sucked him. Suck 42 if you missed it. I'd like to think it was a good one. I learned a lot. 
Happy Monday, Time Suckers. Reverend Dr. Joe, Queen of the Suck, Lindsay, both uh, in the Suck Dungeon off and on today. Uh, thanks to everyone who got little Time Suck onesies for their for their baby suckers this past week. Little ones getting that sweet suck. Little suckers. Little ones too, uh, too little to understand the horror of so much of what I say. Today, the horror of Ed Kemper. My God. Uh, fun to finally get a product uh, that a lot of people had asked about for a long, long time. Ho- hope you like the design and everything. I-, I-, I do. I think it's great. I'm Dan Cummins. He who sucks but still may be lost. Camp counselor of the cult of the curious. Hail Nimrod. Hail Lucifina. Praise Bojangles. Uh, he's such a good boy most of the time. I, I write suck so often uh, that in my notes, it's he suck a good boy. Time suck is brought to you today. Let's get to that. By the bro Um podcast. bro Um, bro Um is a new podcast brought to you by fellow time suckers and space lizards, Joe DeMeo and Ben Ferguson. There's nothing wrong with being a traditional dude and liking guy stuff, but how do you learn dude stuff? Each week, Joe and Ben will tackle a topic that they think the average guy could use some help with. The show is launching this week and they are opening with two episodes. Get in on the ground floor. How to talk to women, how to build wealth. Did you know that women are actually people? God, I hope you knew that, but maybe you don't. Maybe a man gave birth to you and you live on some sort of man island, but can still listen to podcasts. Some dudes really don't know that shit. Uh, It's not a bunch of pickup nonsense. It's more about how to talk to people just in general. Who doesn't want to make more money? Do you know how mortgages work? You'll, uh, You'll learn how to build wealth. Right In an episode full of practical advice on how to maximize your money, maximize that money you're making and, uh, you know, how to use it to build a good future. Just, you know, important information. Tune in to Broom each week for good information and a few laughs as, uh, as Joe and Ben attempt to seek enlightenment through deadlifts. Yes, deadlifts are in there. That is manly for sure. I know that. Even I know that. So you can go to broam.com, B-R-O-A-U-M.com for more information. Link in the episode description or push the button on the Time Suck web, website, or app for Broam. Uh, thanks for everyone who came out to the TED, uh, TEDx talk. I always want to call it a TED talk. I guess that's an important distinction. TEDx. They look the same to me. Whatever. Some kind of branding thing. Uh, I, w- I was nervous for that. Man, holy shit, was I nervous. I, I think it went well. Uh, I don't remember a lot of being on stage. Uh, strange to perform a non-comedic piece. We'll see. It's a trolls tear, uh, tear apart my thoughts, uh, about, you know, our thoughts and data, I guess, really all the stats I gave about how consistently overly negative news, news so negative either is or feels fake is eroding faith in not only the media, but in other traditional sources of authority, like the educational system, medical establishment, scientific community, and more, you know, cause faith in all these institutions has plummeted in recent decades. That concerns me. I don't want to, I don't want to live in an Id- idiocracy. Basically, people are living or believing in experts less and less often, uh, which I think, yeah, it really is scary because when you, when you don't trust experts anymore, who do you trust? By default, you trust non-experts, and they, by definition, are people who know even fucking less than the people you already don't think know anything. Ah, my, my dad and I were actually talking about this this morning again, about my uncle. I'm not going to say which side of the spectrum he, he's on politically, but he only only believes one side of the news. He he won't, he literally will not consider any story at all from quite a few different media sources now. He thinks all of it is lies, like literally all of it. And he's not alone. There's a lot of people like that on both sides. They think the other side is complete. And that is just, it's fucking idiotic for starters. And, and, it, and it's terrifying. It's not true. And it's just terrifying 
And uh, I don't know. They wanted the thought or the, t- the talk, excuse me, to be thought provoking. And, and I'd like to think that's, that's, what I, that's what I gave. People seem to like it. And yeah, man, I just, uh, you know, I want us to uh, live in a world where we can, you know, have critical thinking skills and, and uh, be able to discern good information from bad information, be able to look at numerous sources of information before we start repeating random shit to everybody we know uh, as if it's, you know, gospel fact. That would be nice. That would, that would cut down on a lot of arguments, I think, if people just uh, took more time to like, wait a minute, what am I talking about? Do I actually know what the fuck I'm talking about? Am I spreading fake news right now? Am I just repeating some half-cock shit that I read on Facebook or some dipshit YouTube troll posted? And now I'm acting like that's uh, for sure a fact? That goes on so much, it, it makes me sick. Uh, man, it feels good to swear again, too. I kept it clean for TEDx. God, it feels good to curse. Uh, hoping I had a great time with uh, you suckers in Rhode Island and Connecticut last week, uh, recording several episodes beforehand to get the sound quality up before I go on a longer trip than normal. Hoping I had a great time. Hoping I, hoping I have more fun with more happy murder shows this week. Uh, Ed Kemper, not happy murder. My, my tour is happy mur- murder. Uh, check dankelmans.tv to check where the happy murder 2009 tour is taking place. Chicago was the last one to be added to the calendar. I, I don't know that we're going to add any more. There's just not room. Uh, this week, I hit the New Brunswick, New Jersey Stress Factory, Thursday, January 24th through Saturday, January 26th, back home before bouncing out to Madison, Wisconsin, Philly, Salt Lake City, and Nashville. In Madison and Salt Lake City, stand-up shows and live time sucks. Talking about the Ant Hill Kids, the Ant Hill Cult, only at the live sucks this year. Insane, brutal cult leader story. Not many cult leaders got people to keep following them after abusing them the way Canadian cult leader Rock Terrio did in, in the 70s. More live sucks on that topic coming up in Cleveland in April, Nashville in April at a comedy festival, Spokane and San Francisco in May, Orlando in August, Phoenix in September, a few more in Denver, Grand Rapids and Tacoma, and then that'll be it for that topic. The 2018 live show, the Matamoros Narco Satanist Cult being released on the Secret Suck for Secret Suck Space Lizards this week, and the Denver show being released to the Space Lizards on Patreon as a video. All right, and that's it. That's it. Now for today's darkness. Oh, buckle up, motherfuckers. The story, the story is just, it's so insane. Uh, time for today's darkness with Ed Kemper. Uh, when I read the initial research for today's suck provided by Heather Knowledge Ninja Rylander again, uh, I was in the suck dungeon with, uh, with Joe Paisley, Reverend Dr. Joe, and I've never interrupted him more at work. Usually I'm the one that's worried about just being interrupted by anyone just because I have a, a lot of content to build every week. And I'm trying to try and stay focused and, uh, you know, avoid a lot of conversations just for time. I kept bothering Joe because I just, I couldn't, I, could, I had to share what I was reading with somebody. You know, I, I just kept saying out loud, uh, m- the most since the Toy Box Killer uh, episode, uh, I just kept saying, what the fuck? Like, what? Are you serious? Why? Uh, I can't believe I've never, I'd never heard about Ed Kemper before Time Suck. I know he's, uh, yeah, well, actually, I was going to give something away for later. Never mind. Uh, dude is cartoonishly evil. Uh, the, the, the research I, I did uh, for this suck reminded me of the research I did on the Chikatilo episode. Like, it's just equ- equally just so strange. And actually, with Chikatilo specifically, there's a certain dysfunctional uh, penis relationship between the two killers. Found a lot of moments of dark laughter. Uh, and I wasn't laughing because what he did is funny. What Nothing he did was uh, was funny as far as the heinous stuff. Far from extremely tragic, but it's just, uh, it's so dark and so ridiculous. It's just that kind of like nervous laughter. Like, oh my God, no, what? 
And then the way he would talk about what he did, or the way he, I guess he's still alive, the way he talks about it, uh, it's it's so ludicrous, it almost feels fake. But it's not fake. He was convicted. He, he is in prison now. Uh, he's been convicted of heinous crimes twice. Uh, there's lots of evidence that backs up what he said he has done. Uh, also strange that he, that he um, was caught twice, not only caught twice, turned himself in twice. Very unusual. Uh, in both both cases, he, he assumed he would just get caught anyway if he didn't. I think that was the main motivation, but still unusual for a serial killer to turn themselves in. N- not once, but twice. Also crazy that he got out after the first time, after the first things he did. Strange, strange twisted animal, uh, this Ed Kemper. Uh, let's dig into his life in today's Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. December 18th, 1948, Edmund Emil Kemper III is born to Edmund Kemper Jr. and Clarnell Strandberg in Burbank, California. Edmund and Clarnell. Hoping they went by Ed and Clara. Edmund and Clarnell sound like the names you would give to some monsters. Anyone remember the monsters? My, my uh, tendency to go with very old references. Uh, Adam's family. It'd be like an Adam's family type situation. Just, you know, hello, I am Edmund. And this is my darling wife, Clarnell. Uh, have you seen our boy, Edmund III? He will grow to be a powerful monster. He will make the Kemper family proud. He will be an incredible force for darkness. Uh, Edmund and Clarnell had gotten married in Great Falls, Montana, up in my neck of the woods. 1942, while Ed was in the Army, he's a World War II veteran. Uh, they either moved to California shortly after getting married or were already living in California when they got married and just uh, came to Montana, you know, for the service. Uh, the couple already had one daughter uh, when Ed, when Ed, uh, Ed Kemper, our Ed Kemper was born, Susan Huny Kemper. Uh, Susan was born five years prior to Ed in 1943. And uh, Ed and Clarnell would soon have another daughter, Alan Lee Kemper, who would be born in 1951. Uh, Susan would grow up and go on to have a happy marriage, raise a family, live a long, fruitful life in Montana. She'd have two sons, Donald and Roy, a daughter, Christy, end up with seven grandchildren. She died in 2014. Uh, in her obituary, her sister is referenced along with other surviving family. Eddie is not. Ah, oh, Ed didn't even get mentioned. Alan is still alive out there somewhere. Uh, she, not surprisingly, hasn't exactly volunteered to do any interviews about her murderous and psychotic uh, big brother. According to some interviews I found with Ed, Susan, and Alan's half-brother, a man who goes by the fake name of David Weber in interviews because he doesn't want his real name known. Can't blame him. Uh, Ed's sister, Alan, thinks of Ed as a good person who did bad things. I, I, I question her really thinking that. Uh, after this suck, I doubt you'll feel the same. Edmund would be their, their, uh, his parents' only son, at least the only one they would have together. What a son he is. He was a huge baby, 13 pounds at birth, Dude just could not wait to start hurting women. First thing he does coming into the world is to violate a woman, violate his mother. I can't imagine you have an easy delivery when you give birth to a giant 13-pound vagina-tearing baby. Uh, I'm guessing some stuff gets shredded. The average birth weight for a newborn baby, by the way, is under 8 pounds. Ed is over 50% bigger than the average baby, and he would grow into an equally disproportionately huge man. By 1952, when Ed is 4, he's already a head taller than other kids his own age. Signs of trouble began to emerge early for young giant Eddie. <laughs> I mean, this, this is going to be one of those things where it's like, was this dude born evil? Like, it's, this is, this is very, very interesting to me, this suck, in the, in the terms of nature versus nurture. Uh, by the end of it, 
I ended up leaning more on the uh, the nature side. Not everyone agrees who has looked into Kemper. Uh, actually, I think most people end up thinking it's more of like a nurture uh, situation with Mama. I-, I think this dude may have just been born a fucking psychotic maniac. Uh, he has a dark fantasy life, sometimes dreaming about killing his, his mother. Uh, he cuts off the head of his sister's dolls, uh, talks to his sisters when they're very young into playing a game called Gas Chamber. A game in which he has his sisters blindfold him and lead him to a chair where he pretends to writhe in agony until he dies, as a young child does. He also plays another fun game with his sisters called Electric Chair. Uh, it's very similar to the Gas Chamber uh, gas chamber game, just a slightly different ending. Uh, when he was in second grade, second grade, he'd, he'd sneak out of his house. He, he would get his dad's World War II bayonet. I don't know if he used uh, bayonets in World War II, but his dad was in the military and his dad had a bayonet. So that's what I call it. But he would get his dad's bayonet. I know that for sure. And he would sneak out to his second grade teacher's house, watch her through the window like a tiny, well, I guess he was big for his age, but still like a young, super young fucking lurker creep and fantasize about murdering her. Second grade. Second grade. None of this is good. My guy, if you have a kid playing murder games who is sneaking out to watch their teacher through the window while essentially holding a fucking spear, you're going to want to put that kid in counseling ASAP. Maybe not Maybe not let him touch anything sharp. Uh, maybe get good, solid locks installed on the doors of every other family member's bedrooms. Maybe also take your little monster's door completely off the hinges so they can't be uh, doing anything creepy alone and, un- and unwatched in there. I don't care if there's only seven or eight. Y- you might want to put like some kind of ankle monitors, GPS monitor on them. So glad I don't have a kid like that. Peeping on a teacher through the window at night in second grade while holding a bayonet. Mixing sexual thoughts with violent thoughts uh, at that age. I, I peeped when I was a kid. I'm going to full disclosure. You guys know I'm pretty transparent. I peeped on a neighbor lady taking a shower. I was, <laughs> I was a sophomore in high school. I was 15. And if my dad and stepmom at the time would have caught me, they should have put me in counseling for that. You know, that's pretty creepy. Uh, luckily, I was not doing it holding a weapon. I was not holding a spear. Uh, I would think about the incident later while holding a spear of sorts, a, a trouser spear, if you will. Uh, I would think about how exciting it was to see a real-life naked woman. I was a creep, but I was not an Ed Kemper level of creep. Thank God. Uh, okay. 1957. Ed Kemper is 10. He's, he uh, he starts to kill now. Uh, not humans. Not humans. But this this disturbed me almost as much as, as the humans we'll be talking about later. I don't know what that says about me. But he starts to kill beginning with the family's pet cat. Uh, <laughs> I know sometimes animal lovers react more strongly to tales of animal sadism than humans. So if you're an animal lover, ah, brace yourself. If you're a cat lover, whoo, this is, this is not going to be fun. This is not going to be fun for you at all. Uh, if you're a cat hater, like a, like a sadistic sociopath cat hater, uh, take off your pants now. Cause you're probably gonna start jerking off. This one is going to be, uh, yeah, it's too bad. Okay, so uh, Bojangles, who is not normally uh, terribly fond of cats, he even growled when I first told him this little tale. 10-year-old Edmund buries the family cat alive. Buries it alive. That's not the most fucked up part. Not even close. Once it's dead, digs up the family. <laughs> I'm not laughing because I think this is funny. It's just so ridiculous. He digs up the family cat. <laughs> he cuts its head off. And then he puts its head on the end of a spike. Like a little, <laughs> like a little cat head on a stick. It's his first trophy, and it's it's a model he would ugh, he would use for later trophies. So fucking messed up. He, he's walking around with his little cat head on a stick. Why did he do this? Turns out he had severe mommy issues. Turns out there was a very good chance that mommy 
as we'll find out soon, was may have been if if she wasn't a vicious man hating woman who made Eddie's life hell. That's how he perceived her. There's a big debate on that. Uh, he, at the very least, he perceived his mother to be against him very strongly, uh, and, and a man hating woman who hated him. And and Eddie both loved, or I guess you know, still does. Both he's alive. Both love and hate his mom. Um, so and that might have something to do with the holding the bayonet out, outside his female teacher's window. Ed, from a very young age, was super intimidated by women, uh, grew to have both a lot of reverence and, and a lot of hatred uh, towards women. And his mom loved the family cat. It was like his mom's cat. So I'm, I'm thinking that is why he killed it. I don't I don't believe he. Well, actually, he, he did speak to speak to that fairly directly. So, yes, uh, I, I, th- I think that is exactly why he killed the family hat. Most of the reason but I just picture this little psycho uh, walking around his yard and, you know, Burbank. The family's cat head on a stick. Just do. You, do you want to pet me now, mother? Why don't you want to pet me, mother? Oh, look at me! Look at your sweet little kitty. Find my body, mother. Find my body and pet it. Uh, I picture him having a very deep voice. He's, he's a big dude. Anyway. Later, nineteen fifty. Even as a child, later nineteen fifty-seven. Ed' parents uh, they get divorced. When asked uh, why, years later, his dad would say, uh, "That spooky kid creeped uh, the hell out of me at ten. He was already bigger than me. I was scared." I talked to Clarnell about killing him, uh, but she was against it. I thought we should at least try and maybe break his spine or paralyze him in something, but she wouldn't even she wouldn't even compromise on that. Uh, we couldn't agree on what to do with little Eddie. Classic ir- ir- irreconcilable differences. Uh, I packed up my shit, left the family, and I've never looked back. That's not what he said. He may have thought it. Uh, what he basically, basically said was he left Clarnell uh, because she was a psycho. So this does give a little bit of credence to the people on the side of nurture with Edward. He said that Clarnell constantly complained about his menial job as an electrician, said that suicide missions in wartime and the later atomic bomb testings he did were nothing compared to living with Clarnell. He also said that she affected him as a grown man more than 396 days and nights of fighting on the front did. Okay, so pretty common for people to to not like their exes. Uh, You know, not liking your ex makes sense. This, This guy definitely took it further. Dude said World War II combat was easier on him than getting along with Clarnell. Okay, all right. So, you know, that's that's pretty strong evidence on the side of Clarnell not being a great woman. There are other people later who would have very different thoughts on him. I, I will say that the, the people who seem to really like Clarnell tended to be women, you know, so maybe he she really did just hate men. Maybe she, she really was fine with women. There is that chance. After they split, Kemper's dad stays in California. Clarnell takes Big Ed and the girls to Helena, Montana. Kemper was a daddy's boy. The divorce devastated him. He had a severely dysfunctional relationship with his mom. He, he did later report her to be neurotic, domineering, alcoholic, uh, said she would frequently belittle, humiliate, and abuse him. In one 1984 interview I watched, Kemper described his mother as a uh, sick, angry, very sad woman. I hated her. I watched the alcohol intake increase. I watched her social life, social life drop off. I watched her get bizarre. She had a terrible life with my father. I'm a constant reminder of that failure. So that's, that's how he interprets it. Clarnell uh, might not have killed anybody like her son, but it does appear that she may have helped drive him to kill. Uh, 1961, when he's 13, Ed kills another family cat, is going to get back at mom again for something, taking out another one of mom's fur babies, again in brutal fashion. Kemper takes a machete to this cat. He holds it, holds its legs, while slicing off the top of its skull with the machete. He doesn't want it to be able to run away. Uh, the blood spurts all over him uh, when he does this, and, and apparently he loves that. He loves the the, the, the feeling of the carnage. God, man, my my uh, my son just turned thirteen. 
And uh, I just can't imagine him doing something like that. Like at 13 years old, he's already a sadistic fucking maniac. He's an extremely angry and demented young man. And uh, and adding another level of terror to him, he's huge already. He's already over six feet tall and over 200 pounds. Man, killing those pets. Uh, Kyler would be in, in counseling several times a week if he buried our dog Penny Pooper alive and then put Penny Pooper's head on. <laughs> I, can't, I can't even imagine. If, he, if I came home and Kyler was in the backyard with Penny Pooper's head on a stick. Do you like me more than Kyler now, father? Do you like Penny Pooper more than father now? And then, and then later, after time, he took a machete to Ginger Bell. What the fuck? How could you ever look at your kid the same way again? Like, my mom teases me to this day about drawing a bunch of naked pictures of women she found in my closet when I was a kid. Uh, she teases me about figuring out how to unlock the parental lock on the satellite TV so I could uh, jerk off to some porn on TV. She walked in on me once. Uh, she teases me about that. Like, but we can joke about it. We can joke about it. It's still in like the normal spectrum of juvenile behavior. I don't think she would be joking with me if when I was a kid, I took her fucking cat and cut its head off and put it on a stick. Ah, you know? Okay, Ed's hatred of women is growing. Uh, attracted to another female teacher around this age, uh, one of his sisters teases him and asks him, why doesn't he try to kiss her? He replies with something that disturbs his sister that she would remember many, many years later. He says... If I kiss her, I'd have to kill her first. Okay. Uh, loves women, hates women. Years later, he recalls one of his first sexual fantasies from around the time uh, uh, as he entered puberty. He said he would masturbate to mental images of killing everyone in the town he lived in, which was Helena, masturbated to, to, to killing everyone in Helena, and then, and then having sex with her corpses. Whew, not good. Um, how do you react to something like that when you're a counselor, by the way, too? That's, well, this kind of stuff is one of the many reasons uh, I could never make it as a counselor. Because I know that, like, if I was listening to some, even if they're young, like 13, 14 years old, and and they're starting to confess to me that they jerk off to continual thoughts of killing everyone in their town and then fucking their corpses, I, I would just be thinking, please, please, God, please, God, if you do exist on behalf of the world, please kill this kid. I know it's not usually good to kill kids, but please kill this one. It's in the best interest of the greater good. Come on, God. You let kids die all the time. Why can't this fucker be next? Don't take sweet kids anymore. Take, don't take the good ones. Take, take the Kempers. Take the, take the other future murderers. Around this age, Kemper's mom starts to lock him in the basement at night because she is afraid that he is going to rape his sisters. Some sources say in, in some fashion there was never charges, not a lot of specifics, but accusations of him uh, molesting to some level his sisters. Fuck. Um, <laughs> that's when you know, man, that, that, that's when you really know your kid is super duper fucked up. Um, he's already killed some pets and then you have to start locking him in the basement so he doesn't rape your other kids. Ed would later claim that getting locked down in the basement at night would become a regular occurrence, gave him further fuel to hate his mother, which I do get. Uh, <laughs> man. Uh, 1964, when he's 15, he runs away from home, which makes sense. The That's almost inevitable. When you start locking your kid in the basement, even if they deserve it, they're bound to run away, I think, at some point. Uh, if you're also letting them out of the basement, which which she was. You know, if you're like, hey, kid, why, why'd you run away from home? Uh, I got tired of my family locking me in the basement at night. Oh, all right. Well, I was going to take you to the police, but that, that actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, carry on. Kemper made it all the way to Van Nuys, California, to his dad's place. Didn't didn't uh, Dad didn't make it very far from Burbank. Burbank and Van Nuys, only about seven, eight miles apart. Kemper makes it all the way there. Upon arriving at his father's house, 
uh, Ed, little Ed discovers that his father has remarried, so they clearly didn't keep him in great touch, and now has another son, his half-brother, uh, the guy with the fake name we heard from earlier, that David Weber. Uh, he also finds out that he is not welcome to stay with his dad and is devastated. Years later, his half-brother, David Weber, will say that part of the reason Ed was not welcome to stay was that he, quote, creeped out his father's new wife. Yeah, I bet he did. Kemper uh, got big quick. By this age, he, he's already close to the full six foot nine. He'd become already weighs around 250 pounds. And yeah, uh, he's a creepy, creepy dude. Kemper would later say, dad didn't want me around because I upset his second wife. My presence gave her migraine headaches. So maybe she had some kind of evil detector in her brain that was sending off constant alarms when Kemper was around. But this is this has to be crushing news for Kemper. Uh, you know, he was thinking when he's locked in the basement at mom's, if only I can make it to dad's, things will be so much better. Everything will be great. Uh, when I was a kid, I lived with my mom after my parents divorced, uh, a mom who never locked me anywhere, a mom who didn't, doesn't hate men. I did often fantasize about how great life would be with my dad. You know, I didn't see my dad uh, very much for a while and it's just easy to do. It's a common phenomenon for like the children of divorced parents when the one parent really isn't around much, it's easy to put that other parent on a pedestal and be like, oh man, I would never get grounded. I'll have mac and cheese for dinner for every meal. You know, do nothing but just have fun. You just build it up in your head. And uh, I, I can only imagine how much more intense that was for Ed. If rightly or wrongly, you know, uh, he thinks his mom is psychotic and hates her and just, man, if I can just make it to dad's and then he gets there and and then dad is like, nope, you're, you're not going to stay here. Uh, that's got to be, and he's fucking psychotic, you know? So he probably put extra <laughs> insanely irrational expectations on what would happen when he lived with his, with his dad. Can't wait to live with father. Oh, man, when I live with father, maybe we can kill cats together. We can put cats heads on sticks together with father, have some fun times with daddy, walk around the neighborhood, father and son, finding cats, whacking off their heads with machetes, talking about what ladies we'd like to kill with bayonets, doing father-son stuff, everything will be perfect with father. Uh, Man, I hope the neighbors hear that upstairs. That'll be fun for them. (laughs) <laughs> All they hear, if you put in, cats heads on sticks with father. Edmund Jr. allows his son to stay with him briefly until he's made arrangements for uh, Ed to live in North Fork, California with his parents, uh, Little Eddie's paternal grandparents, Edmund Sr., uh, Maud Kemper, on their 17-acre ranch. Kemper would recall later that he was shipped off to his paternal grandparents to live in complete isolation on a California mountaintop with my senile grandfather, and my grandmother, who thought she had more balls than any man and was constantly emasculating me and my grandfather to prove it. I couldn't please her. It was like being in jail. I became a walking time bomb. True or not, Ed thinks he has another woman in his life controlling and emasculating him, another woman hurting him. Not sure this is true about grandma, and this was part of the reason I like started to question his feelings about his mom. I mean, I guess he could be just projecting uh, his vision of his mother onto his grandma, but... Nothing anywhere says that his grandma was anything like this. Uh, To me, it felt like he was very much reading into this. Uh, Dr. Joel Fort, a San Francisco-based specialist in social and health problems, including crime and violence, who would later testify at Kemper's trial, said he found his grandmother to be authoritarian and a disciplinarian just like his mother. That's even interesting wording with him. He found his grandmother to be. Not Not that she was. Yeah, he considered that. While he hated living on the ranch, at least he had to kill lots of small woodland creatures. For his first and only Christmas there, Kemper's grandfather gave him a 22 caliber rifle to shoot rabbits and other small game with uh, around the farm. Can only imagine how many furry critters were shot on those acres. 
just a giant Kemper standing above them with a rock hard erection because he would later say this, this you know this, these killings like made him made him uh, sexually excited just watching little animals suffer and die. How disturbing is that? Totally speculating this happened, but based on what I know about Kemper, I, I feel pretty sure that something something went on similar to this kind of scenario. But mother would like this little furry rabbit. So furry and soft, but mama would hate it if I put its head on a stick like those cats. Oh, I wish I could send a, a rabbit head on a stick to mother. Oh, but uh, post office don't let me send stick heads. Why is everyone out to get me? Uh, while Kemper may or may not have used his rifle to kill lots of little animals, he definitely used it to kill some humans. August 27th, 1964, Kemper takes a 22 his grandpa had recently given him. And while his 66-year-old grandma, Maude Kemper, sits at the kitchen table typing on a typewriter, you know, not paying attention to, to Ed, he shoots her three times in the back of the head. He later said he killed his grandmother, quote, just to see what it felt like. That's when you know you are truly dealing with somebody who has no empathy, like a true narcissistic sociopath or psychopath. When they, they tell you they not only do they kill their fucking grandma, but they do it just to see what it feels like, you know? That's somebody who would not hesitate to kill you if your death could benefit benefit them in any way. You know, if they feel like they could get away with it. Uh, to make sure he finished the job, Kemper also stabbed Grandma uh, a few times in the back with a kitchen knife. That's what he would say. Uh, he said later, I didn't think she was dead and I wanted her to suffer. I think that's bullshit. Uh, you just shot her three times in the fucking head at point blank range. I, I think he just wanted to, to cause more carnage and the act of, of stabbing sexually excited him. I bet, I bet this sick little fuck was just hard as a rock while he's stabbing his dead grandmother. Uh, Kemper then waited, and when his 72-year-old grandfather pulled up to the house, the old man waves, smiles at his grandson. Hey, Ed! You know, before he gets out of the car, he's going to grab some uh, grocery packages. He he purchased in town. He, he bends down to pick up those packages, and then Kemper shoots him in the back of the head as well. Says he did it because I didn't want him to see what I had done. And then he hides his grandfather's body in a closet to, to help keep this uh, gruesome murder a secret. A psychiatrist would later say, uh, he said he didn't want his grandfather to suffer, knowing that his wife was dead. Again, bullshit. Uh, I think he just killed his grandfather because he just didn't want to get caught. That's all. He just didn't want to get caught, you know? He would later say uh, he didn't want uh, his grandfather to be mad at him when he found out what he did. You know? Ding, ding, ding. A little bit of truth there. Makes a lot more sense. And, oh, I just don't want, want grandfather to be sad. I thought he would be sad. If I if I killed his wife, I I thought I bet he will be upset. Um, God, man, k- killing killing his wife with the gun this guy gave him, killing him because because you're worried about him turning you in. What a cold blooded son of a bitch! Paranoia sets in immediately. Camper begins to imagine people coming to the remote home in the rugged California mountains to to, to catch him. He starts thinking that he's going to have to kill all of them too in order to keep from being found. He doesn't know how he's going to kill everybody. He said, uh, later, I sensed everybody in the world coming to get me. I knew anybody that came up there that gave me a funny look or a fishy eye or a quizzical look, I would have to blow their brains out. If I had been in a city, I would have been a mass murderer at 15. I would have killed until they gunned me down. I was scared to death and I felt violent. I was the rabbit that always ran, that always burned my bridges and there was nowhere else to run. My back hit that wall and I came out screaming and kicking and shooting. I was raging inside. Finally, unable to live with his despicable act, that's what he says. I just think he was just worried about uh, getting caught or maybe he just wanted to upset his mother. Uh, he calls his mom, sobbing, confesses to the horrible crime. I'm sure those tears were for himself. He's just crying about getting worried about getting caught. He's, he doesn't care about grandma and grandpa. Uh, Carnell, uh, his mother, advised him to call the police, which he does. And then he waits patiently on grandpa's front porch uh, for the authorities to arrive. 
And then he just, he doesn't uh, put up a fight at all. Just, you know, shows him what happened when he gets there. <laughs> confesses to everything. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking he probably just thought he would get in less trouble if he confessed. Uh, and he didn't end up getting in much trouble. After his arrest, he underwent a barrage of psychiatric testing. He was found to have a near genius IQ level. Uh, he, he tested out at 136 the first time and 145 the second. Uh, it was also determined that he suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. Kemper ended up being placed in the Atascadero State Hospital for the Criminally Insane in Atascadero, or Atascadero, California, halfway between L.A. and San Francisco off Highway 101. Uh, it's still there today. Kemper became patient number B52453, housed among approximately 1,600 other murderers and sex offenders also there. Not sure what his sentence was because uh, his sentence was sealed due to his juvenile offender status. And oddly, he thrives in this place. The psychiatric staff at Atascadero found him both to be very intelligent and very personable and, and very likable. They liked him. He soon gave pro- gained privileges that others uh, didn't have. Ed is a bright fellow. That was obvious when you were talking with him, said Dr. William Schonberger, one of the uh, staff psychiatrists at the hospital. He added he was kind of a model patient. Kemper spent five years at Atascadero after he murdered his grandparents. He recalled with pride the job he'd held there as head of the psychological testing lab at the age of 19 and working directly under the hospital's chief psychologist. He said, I felt I definitely could have done a lot of good there, helping people return to the streets. I could have fit in there quicker than anybody else. After all, I grew up there. That used to be like my home. Basically, I was born there, you know. I have a lot of fond memories of that place. Uh, he was entrusted to help the hospital staff administer psychiatric tests to other patients. He, be- <laughs> he became a member of the Junior Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> that, that cracks me up. He's, uh, what kind of business ideas is he cooking up? Hey, what do you guys think of this business idea? Cat head sickles. It's like a popsicle, but instead, hear me out. (laughs) Instead of frozen sugar and water and other sweet, syrupy flavors, it's a frozen cat's head. Cat head sickles, where the pets are the treats. Uh, During his trial, he wore his Chamber of Commerce membership pin on his lapel with pride. Because of his intelligence and ability, he apparently was a valuable aid in psychological testing and research. He said... I helped to develop some new tests and some new scales on the MMPI, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. I helped to develop a new scale called the Overt Hostility Scale. How's that for ironic? Yeah, he's he's a smart guy. It's uh, it's actually pretty ironic. Uh, After gaining the counselor's trust, quickly becoming seemingly cured, Kemper was paroled on his 21st birthday on December 18th, 1971. What? He just slept back out. Ah, when he's 21. And then because the parole officers uh, were really busy with other caseloads and they they just were so not concerned with him, he claims that he, he didn't end up even having to check in with his parole officers. He said he went to check in the first time. They told him, like, do you feel like a lot of rage? And he was like, no. And they were like, well, we're busy with some other stuff. As long as you feel good, just, you know, you're good. You don't have to come over. You don't have to check in. Mike Johnson, a former reporter for the San Jose Mercury News, thinks that uh, Kemper was just smart enough to manipulate the doctors at the state hospital. Because check this out. Speaking to his criminal genius and just his IQ, the counselors, they trusted him. So he was so manipulative. They trusted him enough to give him access to materials that allowed him to master test questions he would later be asked in order to prove he had been rehabilitated uh, when they made him that aid in that psychological testing and research department. Uh, Mike Johnson says he intentionally led all the psychiatrists to believe that he was normal. He had them eating out of his hands. One of the errands he would run was to carry test materials from one room to another. 
Kemper later said that during these trips between offices, he would memorize this material, uh, you know, just beginning this pattern of manipulation that he really kind of mastered in, in the walls of this facility. He just became a better manipulator there. He had so much access to the records of other patients and test papers, he just learned all the criteria for all the diagnosis, like, and, and, and what they would be looking for to find out if the person was truly cured, you know, signs that they were faking it. And he just learned to master behaving in that way. Like he knew exactly how to act and then did that. And then they thought he was totally cured. That's some Hannibal Lecter silence of the lambs type shit. Just, you know, I, I knew what they wanted to hear, Clarice. I gave them the answers that they yearned to receive. I enjoyed knowing that they would feel tremendous guilt and shame for the later killings I had already planned. Uh, after he was released, although his psychiatrist recommended he not have contact or live with his mother, he was nonetheless returned by his parole officer. So he didn't have to check out, you know, really with parole officers. But he did. He was, uh, you know, put in her care. And, and that move would would set off a tragic chain of events. I mean, I mean, maybe they would have happened anyway, but but probably not as quickly and as severely as he did because of his anger towards mom. Uh, almost immediately, he claims the, the verbal abuse began anew. Um, <clears throat> Kemper recalls his mother saying, for seven years, I haven't had sex with a man because of you, my murderous son. That might be true. Probably a little harder to get laid <laughs> when, when your son's fucking grandpa-killing maniac. Uh, for his part, he almost immediately reverts back to the angry, frightened, damaged boy uh, who been, you know, trapped in that Montana basement. Kemper's mother had since left Montana, resettled in California, this time in Santa Cruz, where she had a job as an administrative assistant at the University of California at Santa Cruz. It was the early 1970s, and the oceanfront community was a big uh, hippie haven. It was a big home to beach-loving, you know, weed-smoking, LSD-dropping hippies and some other tourists. A lot of the counterculture bled over from the San Francisco Bay, ended up forming, you know, uh, people forming communes and places like Santa Cruz and Santa Cruz County. Uh, yeah, it was an attractive area to, to these kind of people, including a lot of beautiful, young, single, free love, uh, loving, you know, hippie girls. Hey, Lucifina. Man, good good time to be alive. Uh, Michael Alufi, a local police officer who later um, became part of the Kemper investigation, said people were coming from across the country to live that free and liberating lifestyle. And Kemper wanted to meet these young, liberated ladies, start a new life, make some regular friends. But he just didn't know how to talk to them. And his murderous personality was simmering just beneath the surface. Uh, he felt particularly inadequate around women. He was lonely. He attempted to date. But after one disastrous first date, he shied away from trying to have any further intimate encounters with these girls. He'd later say, my first date was an absolute disaster. It was a terrible tragedy. Uh, his first date is the only like real date. He took a girl out to eat at Denny's <laughs> and then to watch a John Wayne movie. Dude, what the hell? Uh, yeah, that's a terrible date. Denny's? Denny's on a first date. And listen, listen, I like Denny's. They have great pancakes. I like solid pancakes, you know, uh, good eggs, good bacon. I like the overall vibe of their diners. I love that they're usually open 24 hours, spent many a late night in a Denny's. Uh, I like them way better than IHOP. Sorry if you work at IHOP. Denny's fucking crushes you. Uh, but Denny's not a first date place. It's like, like That's like taking a lady to Taco Bell or White Castle. Hi, my name is uh, Ed. Uh, I have... No originality or concept of romance. Like, dude, you, you don't have to go someplace expensive, but find a find a little mom pa diner. Just as cheap, but has some charm. And then movie, no, take her out for a drink, a game of pool, something where you can interact a little bit, not have to rely on conversation, but not be totally quiet either. And not, not John Wayne? That's a dude flick. Come on. Kemper knew he had no skills. He'd say, it wasn't her fault. I don't blame her. I was such a dork. A grandparent-killing kind of dork. That's, that's arguably the worst kind of dork. Uh, and he also... 
He did have another reason to be intimidated around women. He had a tiny, tiny penis. Not sure exactly how big it was. Uh, but I know based on numerous articles, uh, based on people who have written books around Ed Kemper, apparently it was very small. Uh, I think in the micro peen territory. And, uh, and looked even smaller than it was due to how big the rest of his body was. So, you know, the contrast not helping him. Had no chance. No, how do you start dating when you're a giant man who's killed his grandparents? You've spent your formative years locked up in a state mental institution for killing your grandparents. You have no sexual experience and you have a tiny little micropene. <laughs> Just, hmm, let, let's see. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, okay, all right. Uh, well, uh, uh, I used to get locked in the basement quite a bit for uh, for trying to rape my sister. <laughs> that that made mother very angry. Uh, I can only imagine how much trouble I would have gotten in if she would have found out about me putting some cats' heads on some sticks. <laughs> I would have uh, would have never gotten out of the basement. How, how are your pancakes? Are they good? Let's see. What else about me? Uh, I'm not crazy anymore. That's documented. I used to be crazy. Killed grandma and grandpa. Uh, that was very naughty. That was very naughty. And I know that because I spent my formative years in the state mental hospital for the criminally insane. Anywho, do you like John Wayne? Uh, I'm sure having fun at our Denny's date. Hey, one last thing. I hope this is not a deal breaker. I have a tiny penis. Like a little teeny tiny peen that makes me very angry. Uh, Kemper, he was in a shitty situation as far as trying to re- rehabilitate his life. <laughs> uh, terrible past. No, you know, oh God, still no positive female role models. Life. Ah, he's, he's a psycho. Uh, he was nothing like the free spirited young young women who were flocking to Santa, uh, you know, Santa Cruz. Nothing like the you know the dudes around there either. He would later say all of these kids were like aliens to me. You know, he'd been locked up. You know, for the beginning of the hip, hippie era in America's entry into Vietnam. He's, he missed those crucial years. During that, that time, you know, the, the, the world had changed significantly. He said regarding, uh, you know, the other kids and, the, and this first date, he said they were totally different from the kids I knew. <laughs> all he knew were people locked up for being fucking monsters. Uh, he said, plus, I've been locked up since I was 15. I, I couldn't tell her that. When I got out on the street, it was like being on a strange planet. People my age were not talking the same language. <laughs> it's almost, you know, I, I met almost no one who'd killed their grandparents. No, he didn't say that. He said, I, I had been living with people older than I was for so long that I was an old fogey. Ed Kemper, man, so smart, but so dumb. So fucked up. He, 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 it does seem like he tried to live a normal life for a little while when he got out. I, I, I will say that, like a tiny little, a little, like for a few months. Kemper got his GED to local college, local community college, uh, almost immediately. He, he hoped to become a police officer. He tried to become a police officer, but he was too tall. It does seem like that's the reason uh, he was not allowed to be a police officer. It wasn't about his past because his, his juvenile records were sealed. Uh, as far as I can tell, that's no longer a reason to be denied being a police officer, being 6'9". And it is crazy to me also that the, the, the reason what wasn't his record. Because from what I read, uh, the police would not have been able to access his juvenile record for killing his grandparents. That doesn't seem good to me. Like I think that um, maybe certain organizations should always be able to unseal your juvenile records. Like if you kill your fucking grandparents— I don't think you should ever be allowed to be a cop, like not ever, uh, or work at a nursing home or be put in charge of bingo night. Uh, instead of joining the police force, he landed a job with the California Division of Highways working as a road construction flagman. Mike Johnson, that San Jose Mercury News reporter, 
said, I really like that paper, by the way. It's come up with another, uh, like the Golden State Killer. I think they do a hell of a job. Uh, he said, he was as strong as a horse, and I think he liked the culture of the job, the physical work. Uh, that's scary. He's very strong for for uh, being a big guy. He saved his money, eventually earned enough money to uh, buy himself a motorcycle, but then he crashed it and suffered a head injury in the process. Great. Violent psychopath with a head injury. That does not bode well historically for, for people uh, people's behavior. As we've learned, another serial killer sucks. And then he wins a settlement. He wins a settlement after the accident uh, that allows him to purchase a car, yellow 1969 Ford Galaxy, and he will use this car to begin a reign of terror on the unsuspecting surrounding community. The highways around Santa Cruz became killer stalking grounds at this time. As we learned, another sucks. Hitchhiking was still common. Remember that way back from Charles Manson? Everybody's hitchhiking around there. A lot of college girls uh, chose hitchhiking as their mode of transportation. Kemper was happy to give them a ride. And then soon, more than happy to do horrible things to them. He said, I traveled a lot because I've been locked up for five and a half years, so I was driving around. The driving around was a way to demonstrate that freedom. It was a way to get the cobwebs out of me. His mother made the mistake of giving him a university staff parking sticker for easier campus access, and she accidentally picked his future victims when she told him to leave those co-eds alone. She told him apparently over and over that he was never going to attract the pretty co-eds at the school and to stay away from them. He would later say, my mother works at the university, but my mother wouldn't introduce me to any of the young ladies at the university because I'm like my father and I don't deserve to know any of these young ladies. Mother thinks I have a bad peen. Mother wants me to keep my angry little ween away from the women, ladies. Uh, this relentless ridicule eventually led him to decide uh, that he was going to kill uh, these girls that, that she, you know, uh, thought a lot of to, to get back at mom. You know, his, his new two-door car would, would be this weapon. Yeah, this poor co- these poor college girls, they would, they would replace his mom's cats, essentially. Soon after getting his car, he starts picking up hitchhiking college girls. He said, at first I picked up girls to talk to them just to try to get acquainted with people my own age and try to strike up a friendship. He would tell investigators that later. Again, I think it's bullshit. I think he was just figuring out what he wanted to do to them and how he would get away with it. And he did make allusions to that later. He found himself sexually attracted to the girls he picked up hitchhiking, which were as many as 150. You know, the overwhelming majority of uh, he let go. And I'm sure they were horrified, you know, later when they learned they had nearly met a violent end at the hand of this maniac um, yeah, he, uh, you know, started having fantasies. He did them in after a while, you know, he, uh, wanted to romance them, didn't know how. And he started fan- just thinking about, well, I'll just rape them. And then he's like, yeah, but if I rape them, I'm going to be easy to I- identify. He said, I decided to mix the two. Uh, he started thinking about killing them. He goes, I-, I decided to mix the two and have a situation of rape and murder and no witnesses and no prosecution. If I killed them, you know, then they couldn't reject me as a man. It was more or less making a doll out of a human being. And carrying out my fantasies with a doll, a living human doll. I'm sorry to sound so cold about this, but what I needed was to have a particular experience with a person. To possess them in a way I wanted to. I had to evict them from their bodies. That's all. Just making some some human fuck dolls. No, no big deal. Just evicting people from their bodies. Look, I did not want to kill those girls, but I did want to be raping them. And I did not want to be caught for raping them. So, as one does, you make a doll out of them. You just evict the person and make a doll. <laughs> Jesus. Ah, murder was such a sad part of uh, his doll making process, I hope. You know? Man, he, but yeah, he realized, like, you know, if, if, I, if, I, if I do this and don't kill them, it's not going to be hard to find the, uh, the guy who looks like an NBA center with a teeny tiny ween. Uh, what Ed is going to do now is so fucked up. Many of you have been asking to bring back the super scary stuff little segment a little more often. 
I think this next murderous section of the timeline calls for it. It's yeah, it's actually is going to get a little worse than what we've already done. Uh, but first, a word from one of today's sponsors. Uh, today's time suck is brought to you by Kemper's Pet Sickles. Do you like pets? Do you like popsicles? Well, if you just said yes twice, <laughs> then there is a very small chance, and I mean very, very, very small chance that you will love Kemper's Pet Sickles. Listen, Kemper's Pet Sickles come in the following flavors: Tabby, Siamese, Persian, Hairless Cat. Uh, they come in just about every flavor of dog, doodles, terriers, chihuahuas, dobermans, rottweilers, and more. They also come in rat, python, pig, ferret, parrot, iguana, goldfish. Basically, any kind of pet that has a head is is bound to become one of Kemper's Pet Sickles. The recipe for Kemper's Pet Sickles, it's no secret, is a pet's head that's been fucking cut off, put on stick, lightly seasoned, and then frozen. But no one's putting more time and care into the pet head removal process than Ed Kemper. Of course, that is not today's sponsor. Thank God. That is not the world we live in where that could be a sponsor. Today's Time Stuck is brought to you by Hims. Uh, I've been really into uh, Hims Goodnight Wrinkle Cream recently. Uh, so much so that the smell of it makes me sleepy now because I've associated putting the, the little Goodnight Wrinkle Cream on my face every night for a few months. It smells so good. Uh, it's just part of my bedtime process. Doesn't give me any pimples. Uh, I gotten so into it, I actually just recently ordered just a couple of days ago the Morning Glow Vitamin C Serum. Uh, Hims is doing what Lindsay has been trying and could not, getting me very, very into lotion and serums. Uh, and there's more to Hims uh, than just lotion. Uh, ForHims.com is, is a one-stop shop for men's health. They also have sexual performance products, which I guess could be kind of related to lotion. I do know that for years, my sex life, uh, at least my early sex life, relied almost exclusively on lotion. Uh, Hims connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to treat erectile dysfunction. Also, him sells well-known generic equivalents to name-brand prescriptions, not weird-ass gas station counter supplements. You're not going to get Spanish fly, right? They're not selling five-hour energy. So stop waiting at the doctor's office and try hymns for a month today. Get started for just five bucks while supplies last. See website for full details. This will cost hundreds of dollars if you went to a doctor or pharmacy. Go to 4 uh, slash Time sucked. That's for him. Uh, that's F O R H I M S dot com slash time sucked. So T I M E S U C K E D. For him.com slash time sucked. Link in the episode description or push the for him's button in the sponsor section of the time suck app. And now the timeline will continue with this section of super scary stuff. Super scary stuff. All right, early 1972. Within a few months of being released from the state psychiatric hospital, Kemper purchases and packs his car with items he would need for his crimes he's been fantasizing about. All right, so all that stuff we talked about, the motorcycle, the, the getting his G, it all happens very fast. And then he, I remember, he is a genius. Uh, he gets uh, plastic bags, knives, blankets, handcuffs, starts driving around in search of the perfect victim. He would say, I saw a lot of people out there and I picked anybody up who wanted a ride. And he actually got the handcuffs from a police officer buddy of his. He had manipulated local police into thinking he was a great dude. More on that in a few minutes. Kemper soon became unable, after give, picking up these girls and giving them their rides, uh, to control his murderous urges. He called these murderous urges little zapples, by the way. And his second murder spree begins. Little zapples. What, what an interesting term just to make murder sound like it's not that big of a deal, right? Not, not that big of a deal just to murder, decapitate somebody, and then sexually desecrate their horse. 
Sorry, lady, you just got zappled. Ha <laughs> ha! Little zappos gonna get mother one of these days. I like my little zappos. Uh, Kemper talked about uh, his growing urge to kill later. He said, I'm picking up uh, young women. I'm going a little farther each time. Uh, first, is, you know, you know, he goes, it's a daring kind of thing. First, there wasn't a gun. I'm driving along. We go to a vulnerable place where there ain't people watching, where I could act out. And I say, no, I can't. And then a gun is in the car hidden. And then this craving, this awful rage, eating, feeling inside, this fantastic passion. It was overwhelming me. It was like drugs. It was like alcohol. A little isn't enough. At first it is, but as you adjust, you need more and more and more. So he's building his urge. He's taking things a little farther, making the rides a little more uncomfortable every time, planning this out. And then on May 7th, 1972, Kemper picked up two 18-year-old Fresno State students who were hitchhiking to visit friends studying in Berkeley, California, Marianne Pesci and Nita Mary Lucessa. In newspaper stories from the Santa Cruz Sentinel, 1972, Pesci was described as being 5'1", wearing a maroon sweatshirt and faded blue jeans. Uh, she had blue eyes and dark hair. Lucessa was also 5'1", blonde with gold-rimmed glasses. was wearing a white shirt beneath denim bib overalls. Both girls, 18 years old, easy targets for Kemper, who had learned to make people, including the police officers he'd recently become ch- became chummy with, uh, feel safe in his large-sized presence. Uh, he told one French interviewer later, they're not going to get in your car if they can see you from a half a block away drooling. Instead, he would check his watch, uh, making himself seem casual rather than too eager. Then, co- you know, combined with a sp- specific pair of, of glasses Kemper wore to make himself seem more studious, he would ease people's apprehension, uh, including this Marianne. He said uh, later, she was a haughty young lady, stuck up a valley girl. She was plain little miss distant with me. Fuck this guy. Fuck this guy. Uh, She had hitchhiked through Europe. She'd done it in the United States. She was good at it. She didn't want to get in the car, though. Her her roommate, Anita, however, much more open. And after asking Kemper where he was headed, jumped into the front seat. Eventually, Marianne got into the back seat. Although, according to Kemper, she kept a close eye on him as they drove. Uh, He said Anita was more flirty, but it was Marianne that Kemper uh, initially found most attractive, which ultimately sealed her fate as his first victim. He said... uh, uh, Anita at one point gave me a sexy little look. I smiled back at her, but I saw it for what it was. It was an 18-year-old girl just feeling her oats. But I was getting caught up with the girl in the back seat. She had pretty blue eyes and beautiful black hair. As they watched each other in the rearview mirror, Kemper was formulating his plan. He drove these uh, young women to a remote area like he'd been doing recently, turned off his car, and then brandished his gun. Uh, the slight women were no match for Kemper. They wouldn't have been able to escape because Kemper had jimmied the door. He's essentially prevented it from being open from the inside. According to police reports and taped confessions, Kemper began his co-ed murder spree by tying up Anita at gunpoint, forcing her into the trunk. He then turned his attention to Marianne Pesci in the back seat, intending to rape her. But even after he'd taken off, uh, off her clothes, he was unable to complete the act because he had no previous sexual experience. He was embarrassed about his little ween. He was inept at his first attempts. Uh, his, his inability to perform sexually enrages him, so he stabs her to death with a knife he had purchased at a pawn shop. Fucking echoes of Chikatilo here. Same anger over a uh, uncooperative penis, except this one a tiny one, you know? I feel like, uh, like Chikatilo would love to hear this story. Just, what is big deal? So he have limp shamecock. It's nothing to worry about. It's uh, a little stabbing take care of that. A little bit of wrestling. Uh, of course, it's tiny. Uh, Kemper, American capitalist. Uh, his tiny peen. Uh, no compared to giant, limp Russian shamecock of Chikatilo. 
Finally, I have better penis than other monster. Stop it, Jigatillo. It's not that tiny. It just looks small because of my body. Please don't make me zapple you and put your head on a stick. Show it to mother. Uh, sorry, new lister. Uh, old, uh, one creepy old suck murder. Meet another creepy one there real quick. Uh, so this is the first time Kemper has used a knife to kill someone. He said, uh, I stabbed her and she didn't fall dead. They're supposed to fall dead. I've seen it in all the movies. It doesn't work that way. When you stab someone, they leak to death. He's so fucking disturbing. Uh, he says, it wasn't working worth a damn. I stabbed her all over. When she turned around, I couldn't see stabbing someone in their breasts. I was, I was that affected by her presence. She ended up getting her throat cut, and I learned the term ear to ear because that's the way it went. He then backed up out of the car and said, shit, now I've got to go kill the other one. Just grandpa all over again, you know. Please don't make me zapple you. Do not sass me today, mother. I had a very hard day. I had to zapple two ladies, but I only wanted to zapple one. Ugh. Uh, Kemper then headed back to the trunk. He finds a terrified Anita uh, who had just listened to her best friend and roommate screaming. Ugh. She's back there. Her hands are cuffed behind her back. He said, I just gone. Listen to his, his verbiage. This guy is so narcissistic. He said, I just gone through a horrible experience with her roommates. And I was in shock because of it. Because of it. Oh, poor to you. Oh, man. You just were victimized with this horrible experience having to stab someone to death or trying to rape. You piece of shit. He goes, I was walking back to the car and thinking, I can't let her go. Everyone's going to know. She sees the blood on my hands and says, what are you doing? And I said, your friend got smart with me. She got really smart with me and I hit her. I think I broke her nose. You'd better come help. Anita began calling out of the trunk and Kemper went in with the, for the kill Again, using that pawn shop knife. When I attacked her at first, she didn't know what was happening, he said. Eventually, however, Anita fell back into the trunk, died of her injuries, and Kemper slammed the trunk shut. After regaining his composure, he deposits Marianne in his trunk as well. His plan was to sneak the girls' bodies into the bedroom of his Alameda apartment. He had temporarily moved out of his mom's house just for a little bit under the cover of darkness in order to dismember them. On the way home to his, to his place, uh, he stopped by police due to a broken taillight, gets away with the warning. Oh, my God, he came so close. He later said, had the officer asked to search his vehicle, he would have killed the officer alongside the remote stretch of road. I was playing a dangerous game, he said. Uh, Kemper later told a reporter that he liked Anita. Excuse me. Uh, thought she was really pretty. She best represented the kind of girl he was attracted to, the kind of girl his mother told him he would never have. I was really quite struck by her personality and her looks, and there was almost just a reverence there. In a way, she epitomized what drove me. Okay, so I guess he liked the other girl more when she was alive, and now he's really into Anita. Once Kemper arrived at his apartment in Alameda, he waited until dark, then took both bodies to his bedroom, where he decapitated them and placed their heads in plastic trash bags. He then cut the girls' bodies into pieces in the bathtub. He said, you know, the heads where everything is at, the brain, eyes, and mouth, that's the person. I remember being told as a kid, you cut off the head and the body dies. The body is nothing after the head is cut off. That's not quite true. With a girl, there's a lot left in the girl's body without a head. <laughs> ah, of course, the personality is gone. Holding a severed head in my hand, I'd say, this is insane. Uh, yeah. You think? I love that it, that it took until you got that far to think that. The whole fucking thing is insane. Uh, Kemper might not be technically criminally insane, but he is batshit crazy. 
just semantics at that point when you're referring to somebody as insane or not. Like you cannot do what he has done and and not be what I think of as just out of your fucking mind crazy. As Ed cut the bodies into pieces, he took photos as each piece was removed and constantly masturbated throughout the gruesome activity. Echoes of Jeffrey, Jeffrey uh, uh, Dahmer now, right? Just uh, getting turned on by these macabre body pieces. The heads he saved as trophies, and then he would later use them for sexual acts. <sighs> Which was apparently, you know, it's easier to do when he have, didn't have to worry about his lack of sexual experience with these, uh, you know, in this situation. Or, or his ironically minuscule-sized penis. My God. Um, uh, kids, if you're, if you're still listening to this episode, let's co- cover your ears up for a minute. I, I know it's already been beyond dark and terrible, but it's going to get uh, a little worse. When I heard he used the head for sexual acts, I thought like, like what part of the head, like, what is he, what, where is he, what is he fucking essentially? Turns out not just the mouth. Uh, he, he also, he found it more satisfying to sexually penetrate their windpipe. Basically, he would just push his penis up towards their head into the, he would fuck their necks. I wonder if he thought that was insane. You know, when he's doing that, oh man, this is real crazy. Oh, you zapples are some real perverts. Even I know that mother would be so mad if she caught me fucking a neck. Uh, my God, this story. I've, I've gone over it so many times and it's, it's just, ah, so crazy. Kemper slept with the girl's heads for a few nights as a monster does. Then he returned the bodies to his trunk. Uh, uh, he dumped some parts into a grove of redwood trees alongside a remote highway. Others in a brushy area that was also fairly remote. Uh, Marianne's, uh, the trunk of her body, minus, you know, minus her arms and legs, was buried. <sighs> Authority said uh, Kemper kept both heads in his car for a while. As he'd drive around, he'd take one out of the bag and use it on himself to simulate oral sex. <laughs> My God. My God, he would just occasionally get roadhead from a literal head. In due course of time, the heads began to decompose, and so eventually he threw both of them into a ravine. The kids were considered missing persons. And again, I'm not laughing. I know how fucking terrible this is. I'm not laughing at the victims. It's just, I don't know how else to react to this stuff. It's so beyond insane to me, all of these details. The heads, when they were found, were so badly decomposed, they had to be identified by dental records. Later, after his arrest, Kemper showed investigators where he buried Marianne's torso. Unfortunately, uh, Anita's body was never found. The girls were listed as missing persons for months. Kemper visited the remains of Anita for months before turning himself in and later leading investigators to the grave where he had buried her. He would say, sometimes afterwards, I visited there to be near her because I loved her and wanted her. That's what he would later say on the witness stand, actually. I loved her and... Uh, Again, but oh, but not but not crazy, but not insane, uh, not criminally insane. He just you know misses his head that he's literally been fucking and is in love with it. All right, uh, let's talk real quick about Kemper's cop buddies, the ones that gave him the handcuffs he would use on some of his victims. Kemper had always wanted to be a police officer, or, or at least for you know for a long time, uh, but his imposing size you know had made it an impossible dream. So instead, when he, when he got out of that state mental institution, you know, went to go live with mom initially, he befriended the cops in the neighborhood and ended up hanging out with them at a bar called the Jury Room, which was the local cop bar. Uh, I remember Ed being there on many occasions, especially when the homicides were going on. He would come in and have a few beers with the guys and talk to us, said Jim Connor, a former city of Santa Cruz police officer who would later play a role in Kemper's arrest. He had a great personality. He was very friendly, very outgoing, and he was a real likable guy. 
Uh-huh. That's apparently why officers unwittingly gave Kemper a pair of handcuffs that he used to control some of his victims, along with a police training badge. Although there is no evidence he used this badge to uh, coerce or ease the minds of his victims. When he was with them, he was able to think about, here I am, an ongoing murderer, and they don't know anything about it, and they fully accept me. I'm just one of the boys, said Dr. Joel Fort, that San Francisco-based specialist you know, in social health and health problems, including crime and violence. Fort described Kemper as a police groupie, which other psychologists have said is a common marker for sexual sadists as well as serial killers. Many serial sexual murderers have a fascination with police, says forensic psychologist uh, Louis Schlesinger. Louis Schlesinger. Uh, that's part of the psychology. And they do that for a number of reasons. They can hang out with them for one, but they can also follow the investigations and see if they're being talked about at all. Uh, this is very stimulating for them. The conversations in the jury room were heavily focused on missing co-eds, which likely added to Kemper's thrill. Son of a bitch, man. This creep is killing and defiling these women, then going to hang out and have drinks with the cops who are trying to catch him. Okay. September's next victim was 15-year-old dance student, uh, Aiko Ku who he picked up while he was hitchhiking, or while she was hitchhiking, excuse me, after missing her bus on the evening of September 14th, 1972. Aiko uh, was on her way to a dance class. She was excited to have landed a chance to appear at the St. Louis World Trade Fair performing Korean ballet. So this talented young kid, uh, because her family had no car, her mother, an employee at the University of California Library, was unable to take her to this event. Uh, So Ku planned to ride the bus. Uh, but the petite dancer would never make it. The night before Ku was to leave, she and her mother put the finishing touches on her costume. Her mom was concerned about her trip. She said later, I didn't want her to go. Uh, it wasn't that important for her to go to that class. But when my daughter wants things, she wants them very bad. I'm no psychic, but I was afraid for her. She was so beautiful last night. I finally told her she could go if she took the bus, if she didn't hitch a ride. Uh, Ku missed the bus, however, then made a sign to alert other drivers headed in the direction of St. Louis where she was going that she needed a ride. Oh, man, my God, I hope my kids never hitchhike. Please never hitchhike, especially Monroe. Do not hitchhike. Oh, my God. That could be the subtitle for this suck. Do not ever fucking hitchhike. Uh, Ku, despite being young, was used to hitchhiking, which I still see people do. The suck dungeon is actually right by a freeway uh, entrance exit. I still see people every once in a while, especially in the summer, wanting to catch rides places. Uh, hitchhiking was common again in the early 70s around Santa Cruz. Camper sees her, gives her the last ride of her life. Says she got in the car and he drove, uh, or no, he didn't say this. Tom, uh, Tom Honig, uh, Tom Honig, a reporter for this, uh, Santa Cruz Sentinel at this time said she got in the car and he drove across the Bay to San Francisco. But unfortunately for her, he kept going. The little girl was terrified, obviously. Once Ku was in his car, Kemper told authorities he drove her to an isolated location in the mountains above Santa Cruz, where he said, I pulled the gun out to show her I had it. She was freaking out. Then I put the gun away, and that had more effect on her than pulling it out. At one point, he locked himself out of his car, but he talked a a hysterical coup into letting him back in. He then taped her mouth shut, pinched her nostrils together until she blacked out, and then he raped her while she was unconscious. Then before she regained consciousness, strangled her to make sure she was dead. Kemper took Ku's body back to his apartment where he dismembered her and cut off her head. Of course he did. This guy loves cutting off fucking heads. Uh, He said, I remember it was very exciting. There was a sexual thrill. It was kind of an exalted, triumphant type thing. Like taking the head of a deer or an elk or something uh, something would be to a hunter. I was the hunter and they were the victims. This is how he rationalized it. You know, Ika wasn't a human being, wasn't a 15 year old girl, you know, with the whole life ahead of her. Uh, she was a fuck doll and a deer and he was a hunter. 
Kemper disposed of her body but kept her head, which he stashed in the trunk of his car. It was there the next day when he attended a psychiatric parole hearing. So he did have to go to this. Uh, he didn't miss a beat telling the mental health professionals exactly what they wanted to hear, keeping his depravity a well-hidden secret. Uh, he saw two doctors that day. The first he saw, um, you know, uh, saw no indication that Kemper was a danger, while the second called the depraved serial killer both normal and safe. Both doctors recommended his juvenile records be totally sealed. Uh, he, he has made an excellent response to the years of treatment. I see no psychiatric reason to consider him to be of danger to himself or any other member of society, one of them wrote. The other suggested that Kemper's motorcycle had been more of a threat to him than he was to anyone else. Meanwhile, kid's head in the trunk. Kemper was given a clean bill of health, went back to his car, coup severed heads there. He, he, he then goes to the jury room, have a few celebratory uh, drinks with his cop buddies. Before, though, in the parking lot of the jury room, this son of a bitch, he opens his trunk to take a look at her fucking head. He says, I suppose as I was standing there looking, I was doing one of those triumphant things, admiring my work and admiring her beauty. And I might say admiring my catch like a fisherman. I just wanted the exaltation over the party. In other words, winning over death. They were dead and I was alive. That was the victory in this case. Uh, he later buried Ku's head in his mother's garden, joking about how his mother always wanted people to look up to her. The rest of her body, minus a scarf, he saved as a trophy, buried in his mother's backyard. All of this has happened within a year of him being released from that state mental hospital. And, and then he, he somehow ends up becoming eligible for parole uh, after getting caught for killing these girls and more later. How, how does this stuff happen? Uh, Kemper's records were sealed a month later despite the objection of district attorney uh, uh, Han Hart. So, but, but it said that his when he tried to be a police officer, they were, they were already sealed. So maybe there was like a, I guess it doesn't, it doesn't specify, but it sounds like there was a, I guess, a, a, a portion of time while they were deciding how they were going to seal them or if they would be sealed when you, when you couldn't look at them. Uh, but District Attorney Hanhart argued that given the nature of his crimes, his, his records should have been kept open for at least another 10 years. Yeah, life, it should be kept open for life. He should not be let out. Uh, I don't know about you, but, but I need an, uh, a quick break from all this darkness. Time for another quick announcement from another kick-ass sponsor. Time Suck is brought to you today by Chicken Joe's Chicken Skin Condoms. Did you know that chicken skin is the most effective prophylactic on the market today? I didn't either. But then Chicken Joe educated me on some science. Bye-bye, playboy. Bye-bye. Chicken skin for the win. Put that chicken skin on. Stick it in. We'll feel better than chicken on your skin. You feel me? You dig? You follow what I'm trying to get you to swallow? What skin do? Keep diseases from getting to you? See a cold sore on a chicken beak? See a chicken with simply souls, you freak? Chicken dinner, chicken winner, chicken dicks, chicks, tits, flicks, fleas, please on your knees, fingers, butts, lick those chicken nuts, yeah, yeah, motherfucker, take that beak. Um, so what Chicken Joe means is, uh, um, I don't know. I don't, we don't know what Chicken Joe means, but he, but he has condoms. We know that he has condoms. Uh, we know they're made of chicken skin and that they might work. So please buy some of Chicken Joe's chicken skin condoms at www.com. I hope these work, uh, dot probably not. That is, that is, of course, not today's spot. Time Suck is not brought to you by Chicken Joe. It is brought to you by Lisa. Resolve to rest this new year. A quality night's sleep helps you recover from distractions faster, prevents burnout, make better decisions, improve your memory, make fewer mistakes, uh, not put stuff on sticks. Maybe if Ed Kemper would have slept on a Lisa, he would have popped out of a cozy bed, not locked in a basement. Saying something like, I love mother. 
No more Zappos with Elisa Mattress. I'm going to pet some kitties, and I'm not going to put nothing on a stick today. We don't know. Could have happened. Uh, Lisa's mission is to provide a better night's rest for everybody. Through their 110 program, they donate one mattress for every 10 they sell. That's more than 31,000 mattresses and counting. Lisa strives to leave the world better than they found it. And that doesn't stop with mattress donations. Together with the Arbor Day Foundation, Lisa plants one tree for every mattress they sell. Do I still love my Lisa? Yeah, still do. Is it still soft? Mm-hmm. Very, very soft. Is it still not too hot? Yes, still sleep very sound, uh, still love not sinking in too far with that memory foam, but sinking in far enough to get some snug, right? You want, you want a little snug, you don't want to over, overdo your snug. So uh, they nail it, so they nail it. So start 2019 well rest. You get $160 off at uh, uh, Lisa Mattress at lisa.com slash time suck. Get that $160 off a Lisa Mattress at lisa.com dot, jeez, uh, lisa lisa.com slash time suck. Okay, if I say it enough, I'll get it right. Use promo code TIMESUCK at checkout. One more time. L-E-E-S-A dot com slash TIMESUCK. Nailed it. Stuck the landing. Promo code TIMESUCK. Nailed that. Link in the episode description. Lisa button in the TIMESUCK app and on the TIMESUCK website to make getting that deal so easy. Uh, Now back to the fall of 1972. Kemper's been out of that state hospital for less than a year. He's been killing again for a few months. He's able to continue to kill now, partly Thanks to another serial killer he will eventually meet when they're both incarcerated. During the time of Kemper's murders, there was another serial killer working the same territory, right? Same territory, same time, which really fucked with police when they're trying to establish a modus operandi for these, uh, for this, you know, who they think is one person initially. Uh, they thought for a while the killings were attributed to the same killer, uh, not to two different men who didn't know each other because this other killer did kill some hitchhikers. Uh, the other killer was 25-year-old Herbert Mullen. Today, Mullen resides at Mule Creek State Prison in Ione, California. Back in late 1972, uh, Herbert was beginning a killing spree that would take the lives of 13 victims. He'd be caught in February of the following year. He confessed that he killed them to prevent earthquakes. As, as crazy as Kemper is, we probably want to uh, do a suck on Herbert Mullen down the road because he is even crazier uh, in his way. Uh, he, yeah, he'd be caught um, killing people. He confessed again. He, he killed people to prevent earthquakes. Uh, like Kemper, he'd previously been committed to a mental hospital. Mullen believed that the Vietnam War had produced enough American death to forestall earthquakes because of some sort of blood sacrifice to nature he believed in, but that with the war winding down by late 1972, he had to start killing more people in order to uh, have enough deaths to keep the earthquakes away. <sighs> Unlike Kemper, uh, he did not target one specific victim type. On October 13th, 1972, for example, Mullen beat Lawrence Whitey White, a homeless man, to death with a baseball bat. Uh, White, 55 years old, had been hitchhiking on Highway 9. Mullen struck him down after uh, tricking him into looking at the car engine. He later tracked down and killed an old high school buddy who had sold him marijuana once. Uh, he, he blamed some problems on his life around the time on some drug use. Felt this guy was responsible. And this is a guy who was voted most likely to succeed by his high school class. At one time, he was a popular, intelligent student. Some think that experimentation with LSD made him paranoid and delusional enough to kill his victims, which also included a priest and two young kids. Uh, uh, people also think that this um, LSD helps maybe bring out or at least intensify paranoid schizophrenia. And like I said, police at the time believed that the same person was responsible for all the murders. Tough to establish a pattern. Given the difference between the, the violent co-ed killings and the seemingly random you know, murders that would eventually be attributed to Mullen. Uh, and then years later... 
in a strange twist, Kemper and Mullen would be arrested around the same time and would end up in adjoining cells. Uh, according to Kemper, Mullen had a habit of singing and bothering people when someone tried to watch TV. So I threw water on him to shut him up. Then when he was a good boy, I'd... <laughs> oh, these are his words. When he was a good boy, I'd give him some peanuts. Herbie liked peanuts. It was effective because pretty soon he asked permission to sing. That's called behavior modification treatment. This fucking... Ah! Ah, this, how scary is Kemper? He's intelligent enough to manipulate, just casually manipulate other serial killers into behaving how he wants them to behave. Well, he's, he's like a Hannibal Lecter on some level. At the University of Santa Cruz, uh, a warning is posted around this time to try and stop you know, more COVID killings. It says, when possible, girls especially stay in dorms after midnight with doors locked. If you must be out at night, walk in pairs, which was you know, not good because he would kill in pairs. If you see a campus police patrol car and wave, they will give you a ride. Use the bus, even if somewhat inconvenient. Your safety is of first importance. If you are leaving campus, advise someone where you are going where you can be reached in the approximate time of your return. Don't hitch a ride, please. Not enough people listen. Despite all the local press, 19-year-old Cynthia Ann Shaw made the terrible mistake of accepting a ride with Kemper on January 8th, 1972, the same day he'd purchased a 22 caliber Ruger handgun. I went bananas after I got that 22. Kemper would later say in an interview with Front Page Detective. Cynthia was babysitting to earn money from college. One of her regular babysitting gigs was for Santa Cruz police officer Jim Connor, who regularly had drinks with Kemper in the jury room. What a weird connection. Connor would say of Cynthia, she was young, needed money like everyone else, and she was a pleasant girl. Knowing she was a student at the university, we felt safe and knew we could trust her with our children. Cynthia was on her way from her home in Santa Cruz to class at Cabrillo College in Aptos when she accepted Kemper's ride. He drove her from Santa Cruz to nearby Watsonville, where he shot her with his 22 caliber uh, weapon, drove the body back to his mother's duplex where she was once again living. The next day, while his mother was away at work, he has sex with her dead body, dismembers Cynthia, packs her remains in plastic bags, boxes, uh, and boxes he stashed in his closet. Her head, uh, he buried outside his bedroom window as a way to keep her close. Mm -hmm. uh, January 10th, a highway patrolman driving on Highway 1 spots two severed human arms along the side of the road, a few days later, a human torso is found floating in a lagoon near Santa Cruz. Two days after that, the ghastly, uh, uh, some, a surfer uh, catching some waves south of Santa Cruz uh, finds a left hand. Later, uh, soon after that, a, a woman's pelvis washes up on shore. Each of the parts belong to Cynthia Ann Shaw. According to fingerprints and chest x-rays, only her head and right hand remained missing after detectives had pieced together the body parts they'd found like a macabre horror puzzle. How would you like that to be your job? have to arrange her body parts back together. My God. Police determined she had been sawed into pieces with power tools. February 5th, 1973, Kemper and his mother get into a fight and the serial killer heads out, enraged from the incident and looking for a kill. He says, uh, later, he tells investigators, my mother and I had a real tiff. I was pissed. I told her I was going to a movie and I jumped up and went straight to the campus because it was still early. This guy's language kills me. He's talking about doing the most heinous things, but he rarely, rarely curses. Uses these odd word choices, you know? Mother and I had a real humdinger of a tiff that night. Man, did she get me peeved. She got me all riled up and ready to zapple. Mother makes me want to zapple when she uses her potty mouth to slander and verbally instigate a tussle with her silly tomfoolery. <sighs> 
Mother's tomfoolery makes me want to fuck some necks. God. Uh, Ed stated that he left his home knowing that the next good-looking girl he would see would die. I might have I know I might not have been much to look at myself, he would say, but I was always but I always went for pretty girls. And I was so pissed I would have killed anyone who got in the car. Unfortunately, two students who had stayed late to study, missing the last buses to leave campus, were the ones to accept his offer for a ride. 22-year-old Rosalind Thorpe was smart, usually took the bus from her apartment in downtown Santa Cruz to the university and back. But on this day, she spent too much time studying. She was a good student, spent too much time studying the library. When it closed at 9, she headed to the bus stop, arms full of books, hoping the last bus hadn't already passed her stop. Another person who could have could have went on to do great things. It was a rainy night when Kemper spotted her standing at the bus stop, illuminated by a street light. It was easy for him, especially driving his 1969 Ford with the university staff parking sticker to entice the unlucky girl into his car. Kemper rolled down the passenger window, leaned out, telling Rosalind, "The bus is gone. I know. I've missed it before too. Can I give you a lift? It's pretty late." The two drove a few blocks before Kemper noticed uh, Alice Lou, 21. Uh, who had also spent too long at the campus library, also studied too hard. Uh, she was wondering how she was going to get home from school. When Kemper's car slowed down, Lou noticed the university staff sticker as well, also noticed Rosalind in the front seat, so she climbed into the back seat with no worries whatsoever. I went on down a ways and slowed down, Kemper later recalled in interviews. I remarked on the beautiful view. All the while, still driving down the road as if he was taking the girls to their desired destination, he's holding his gun uh, you know, uh, from near his foot to his lap, he then picked it up, quickly pulled the trigger, killing Rosalind, who slumped against the passenger door window dead. In the back seat, uh, Alice, unsurprisingly, is freaking the fuck out, frantic, panicking, struggling to try uh, to escape. Uh, he, he starts firing at her. He says, I had to fire through her hands. She was moving around, and I missed twice. He finally hits her in the temple. She wasn't yet dead. He shoots her again. According to some accounts, she may have still been alive and moaning loudly as he approached the entrance to the university. Even if she was still alive, he didn't stop Kemper from driving the girls through a security checkpoint. Guards who saw Kemper's university parking sticker believed his story that the girls were drunk and he was just taking them back to their dorms. It was getting easier to do, Kemper said, and I was getting better at it. So he, uh, instead of taking them back to their dorms, he takes them back to uh, Mother's house where he takes Alex, Alice's body inside to have sex with it and Rosalind's in order to remove the bullet from her head to reduce his risk of detection. Then he dismembers and beheads both girls. Uh, despite taking precautions to not get caught, like taking the bullet out of the one head, around this time, he also starts getting more reckless and cocky with his behavior. He loved the adrenaline rush of flirting with getting caught but not getting caught. When he dismembered the girl's bodies in his mother's house, he, he didn't even close the curtains. He intentionally left them open. He said one of his neighbors was right there in their window. All they had to do was turn their head in order to see what he was doing, but they never did. The next morning, Kemper tossed his body parts of both girls in the ocean, the surrounding hills of Alameda County, tosses the head separately from the rest of the bodies. Uh, almost two weeks later, after a storm had struck Alameda County's Eden Canyon, a road crew checking for damage from the heavy wind and rain saw what at the time they thought were mannequins. Instead, they found two decaying, mutilated corpses, both missing their heads. Uh, X-rays and, dis- and descriptions of the girls, uh, um, their their families would labor- later detain that the bodies were those of Alice Liu and Rosalind Thorpe. God, their poor families having to identify their dead dead daughters, especially in that way. Less than two months later, Kemper would kill his final two victims. Uh, kill him in the same day. Uh, on Good Friday, 1973, April 20th, Kemper worked half a day and before coming home, contemplated his mother's death, which he'd been planning for a week. He came home late, stopped in her bedroom to let her know he was home. 
uh, hoping that she would say something nice to him to stop what he felt was her inevitable murder. Instead of greeting him kindly, the woman who was tucked into bed with the book said, oh my God, now I suppose you're going to want to stay up and talk all night. That's all he said that she said. Oh my God, I suppose you're going to want to talk all night. Uh... (laughs) Uh, he said, I was hoping that she would say something that would stop this, but instead the last words we shared were a fight. Fight? F- really? Dude, it's late. She's not young. She probably has worked a long week. So your mom doesn't want to listen to your big, creepy, crazy ass ramble on about your little fucking ween problems. That's not a fight. That someone just not being in the mood to deal with someone who's been a constant cat killing, grandparents killing, hoping to rape their sisters, pain in their ass. I really expected a harsher interaction to set off the murder. Something more dramatic like, oh my God. Now I suppose you're going to want to stay up and, and, and talk all night, you stupid fucking piece of shit. I hate you so much, I wish you were dead. Nope. Just says, doesn't want to talk. Mother's always so quick to start a fight. Man, she gets my samples in a real humdinger tizzy. She's always saying hateful stuff like, Eddie, I'm tired. I don't want to play Battleship anymore. Oh, Eddie, it's 3 a.m. I have work. Eddie, I don't want to watch another episode of I Dream of Jeannie. Mother makes me so angry, I want to cut her head off and put my pain in her neck. Uh, so hurt. He's hurt. Kemper leaves her room, goes to his own bed, lays awake for several hours, and early the next morning, stewing over this final insult. Uh, you know, uh, he decides this time he, he's had enough, and at about 5 a.m., before the sun is up, he, he, gets a, he gets a claw hammer, bashes her fucking head in. He goes, I I walked in there with the hammer, caved in the side of her head, cut her throat. He then beheaded her. Then he fucks his own mother's head, puts it ceremoniously on the mantle, and uses it for a while for a dartboard. Jesus. He bashes his mom's head in. He cuts cuts his mother's head off. He, He fucks his mom's head and then uses it as a dartboard. I've... I have never been angry enough at anyone to even comprehend something to that level. Like I've that level of rage is beyond my ability to comprehend. And I can be a pretty angry guy. And and this guy could still be paroled. He is still eligible for, for parole. Can we please pass a new very specific law where if you ever cut anyone's head off and then fuck it and then use it as a dartboard at the very least You never get to get out. You never get to get out. He yells and screams at her head while he's throwing darts at it. Uh, Says it threw darts at her face. He's still not done. (sighs) Then he he cuts out her larynx. He cuts out her tongue. And he tries to put him in the garbage disposal. The machine, the garbage disposal, kicks back uh, remnants of, of tissue and blood back into his face. He would say later, that seemed appropriate. As much as she'd bitched and screamed it, yelled at me over so many years. Fuck! He can admit and talk about this calmly. Like what he did was the equivalent of just a harmless little spat. You know, just father, (laughs) mother and I, we got in a lot of little fights over the years. Uh, Usually I could just brush things off. But one time I had to cut her head off, have sex with it, play some darts. And wouldn't wouldn't you know it, when I put her tongue in the garbage disposal... It kind of screamed back at me. <laughs> That's so mother. That's so mother to shoot your your tongue filth at my face. Even after I fucked your head. <sighs> Despite all this violence, Kemper uh, felt like he, he still couldn't get his mom's voice out of his head. 
He said, even when she was dead, she was still bitching at me. I couldn't get, I couldn't get her to shut up, he said. Uh, to take his mind off his mother. He heads to the bar where he tosses back a few drinks with his cop buddies. Ah, still doesn't help. His sadistic urges still not been satisfied. So then that evening, he, uh, you know, he's, he's killed his mom early that morning. Th- this evening, he does something else to hurt his mother. He kills someone else his mother cared about. He, he calls his mother's best friend, 59-year-old Sally Hallett, invites over for dinner less than 24 hours after killing his mom. She comes over that night, April 21st. And this is how uh, uh, he kills his mother's best friend. He says, I came up behind her and crooked my arm around her neck, around her neck like this. He tells the reporter uh, later, demonstrating, you know, he bends his arm up to his chin like a chokehold kind of position. He says, I squeezed and just lifted her off the floor. Remember, he's 6'9", very strong. She just hung there. And for a moment, I didn't realize she was dead. I had broken her neck and her head was just wobbling around with the bones of her neck disconnected in the skin sack of her neck. That's a quote from him. Kemper then spends the rest of that night fucking the dead body of his mother's best friend. Then drives away from the bloody scene and uh, is in Hallett's car. He leaves behind a note for police near his mother's body. It says approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday. No need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete, gents. Gents, he says. Just a lack of time. I got things to do. Five exclamation points. He's just writing his uh, drinking buddy's little note. Hey, hey, guys. Hey, fellas. Uh, here, here's the deal. Sorry about the mess, but <laughs> I got a jet. You know how it is. After you, you know, kill a couple people, fuck some heads, you got to get out of town. So now Kemper's on the run, briefly. Kemper began downing cape- caffeine pills before ditching Hallett's car in Nevada, where he rents a Chevy uh, Impala. He drives for hours before landing in Pueblo, Colorado. Uh, once there, on April 23rd, he pulls over, calls the Santa Cruz police from a telephone booth, and confesses to murdering his mother. I guess he just didn't feel like living on the run. Uh... Maybe he didn't want to upset his, his buddies. Maybe he just missed the uh, structure of uh, incarceration. Santa Cruz police are surprised when they receive the phone call from a Pueblo phone, Pueblo phone booth. Uh, and, um, you know, confessing all this. At first, the police think he's joking. How could, how could their tequila-loving buddy, who always said he would have been a cop if he hadn't been, you know, so big, had done something so despicable? Uh, they, yeah, they don't believe him. The call gets accidentally disconnected. And uh, and the police just you know they just write it off as a prank. <laughs> Ed, Ed, come on, man, that's fun. why did you fucking say that, you jokester? Ah, see you next week at the at the jury room. But then Camper calls back uh, another officer, Jim Connor, the, the the one whose babysitter died at the hands of the co-ed killer. He takes the call, and he says he says later, knowing Ed, I got on the phone. We started talking. And I could tell something wasn't right. He hadn't had any sleep. He had done something really bad. He said that he had killed his mother and a friend of hers. Said they were at the house. Said I killed my mother and her friend. And I killed those college girls. I killed six of them. And I can show you where I hid the pieces of their bodies. Uh, Connor kept Kemper on the phone and sent officers to Kemper's mother's house. Shortly after they arrived, they find Kemper's mother and the middle-aged best friend hid in a closet. In the closet, we pulled back the sheet and saw some hair and some blood. Another officer would say the claw hammer was there. Uh, I guess there was a three-foot saber with a curved bloody blade he used in some fashion during the attacks. Santa Cruz police contacted their Pueblo counterparts who dispatched two officers to the phone booth where Kemper was waiting, uh, still telling his story to the Santa Cruz cops. The first officer to reach Kemper had been warned about Kemper's size and the fact that he was armed, approached him with caution. Again, he's 6'9". At this time, apparently he was 280. Uh, Kemper was big enough to beat a mountain lion with a switch, Pueblo chief of police Robert Maber would later say. 
but he put up no resistance during the arrest, came out of the phone booth with his arms in front of him, preparing to be handcuffed. He was asked to put his hands up. He's so fucking big, he puts his hands up on top of the photo booth, or the phone booth, excuse me. Police asked where his weapons were. He tells him in the trunk of the Apollo, and then just starts talking about the gory specifics of his crimes. He talked and talked and talked, said an officer who had been sent to Pueblo to escort Kemper back to Santa Cruz. He said a lot of things that were kind of disturbing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I bet he did. Uh, apparently he talked about how satisfying fucking someone's head was. That was disturbing. They travel from Colorado back to California. Kemper sits in the back seat, shackled and handcuffed. At night, he'd be housed in local jails along the route. During the day, they would stop for lunch at local drive-in restaurants. At one lunch spot, two young women walked by the car, causing Kemper to vomit, a reaction he would say uh, he had often in response to attractive women, at least attractive women who were not under his control. Such a strange relationship psychologically to women. Uh, once they were back in Santa Cruz, police impounded Kemper's battered yellow Ford where they find human hair, uh, some blonde, some brunette, some, some ammunition, a bullet Kemper failed to extract from an interior panel, blood in the back seat. Uh, search of the trunk yields more hair along with, uh, you know, tools of his, including a shovel, raincoat, water bottle. You know, no reason to be dehydrated when you're out fucking murdering people in an animal-coated uh, dishpan. Meanwhile, Kemper took police on a grisly tour, showing them numerous places where he had thrown, hidden, or buried body parts of his victims. Kemper and the police first stopped in Alameda County, where Kemper had lived for a time in his own apartment, took them to several sites where he deposited the de decapitated heads and other parts of some of his victims. All the bodies were within 20 miles of Kemper's mother's apartment. That's not a coincidence. All this death, man, all of it seems to always, you know, get traced back to the rage he fell, feels towards mother. And, and, and that is enough. We'll continue with the timeline, but that is enough of today's super scary stuff. So now let's jump up a little bit to May 7th, 1973, when Kemper is indicted on eight counts of first degree murder. He's assigned the chief public defender of Santa Cruz County, uh, attorney Jim Jackson, Due to Kemper's explicit and detailed confession, his counsel's only option is to plead not guilty by reason of insanity to the charges. Kemper twice tries to commit suicide in custody, survives both uh, attempts. His trial goes ahead on October 23rd, 1973. During his trial, he claims that he ate parts of his victims, but later would recant that and admitted he only said it to try to get that insanity verdict. On November 1st, Kemper took the stand. He testified that he killed the women because he wanted them for myself, like possessions and attempted to convince the jury that he was insane based on the reasoning that his actions could only have been committed by somebody with an aberrant mind, and which I got to agree with, but in the, in the legal technical sense, you know, he knew what he was doing, he planned it, he knew that he was trying to get away with it, so he wasn't that kind of insane. Uh, he said two beings inhabited his body, and that when the killer personality took over, it was kind of like blacking out. Of course, he's referring to his apples that make him do things. Uh, November 8th, 1973, the six-man, six-woman jury convenes for five hours before declaring Kemper sane and guilty on all counts. He asks for the death penalty, requesting <laughs> death by torture. I mean, he knows he's not going to get that. Uh, however, with the moratorium placed on capital punishment by the Supreme Court at the time, we've talked about this in reference to other California serial killers, uh, he instead received seven years to life for each count, can't be given the death penalty. These terms are, are to be served concurrently. And he's sentenced to the California Medical Facility. And then, this, this part blows my fucking mind. In 1979, Kemper uh, is up for parole for the first time. He's up for parole six years later. I, I, he didn't get it. He didn't get it. 
How? In what world is that an option after someone has done those things? And that takes us out of today's Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. I mean, I can't believe I, haven't, I hadn't heard about this dude before. His story is so crazy. If you found yourself like me, darkly fascinated with Kemper, you're, you're far from alone. Uh, the FBI was so fascinated by Kemper, he became a major part of the early studies done by the FBI's behavioral science unit, what would become that unit, uh, you know, the agents that would form that unit, this unit that figured out how to profile serial killers. Uh, in the 1970s, the FBI came up with the idea that by visiting prisons and talking to horrific serial killers, they could learn more about their motives. Kemper was one of the serial killers they talked to, uh, one of the ones they ended up talking to the most. And he was such a charming son of a bitch, some of the agents admitted to liking him. He had a very high IQ, as we said. He was very articulate, the ideal person you would want to interview. He was able to provide a lot of insights as to why these offenders commit these crimes. FBI agents were able to identify some common characteristics and backgrounds among serial killers we normally would not have known about. For instance, that they tortured animals as kids. So, so why would Kemper, though, want to help the FBI? Well, because uh, serial killers in general tend to to enjoy reliving their dark experiences. Uh, it helps them pass the time in jail, for one thing. Uh, it, it's definitely not about helping the police. They're not doing this out of, out of any kind of goodwill. They always act like they are. Fuck bullshit. They're doing it to feel important and special. They're narcissists. Uh, they love having the focus on them. You know, in a lot of cases like Kemper's, these people score high on the on, on, on psychopathy kind of scales, you know, which which is distinguished by feelings of narcissism, low impulse control and grandiosity. You know, they, they, they just feel important and powerful talking to the police. Um, I want I wanted before we go to to look into what some other people think about uh, Ed Kemper. And I did find some interesting insights on today's idiots of the Internet. Uh, for today's video, I, I watched, you know, one of these interviews done with Ed Kemper, you know, that where he gives a lot of the kind of, you know, answers a lot of the type of questions that the FBI profilers would learn from him. It's called Interview 1994, first of two, uh, published on June 17th, 2011, over 1.5 million views. User Joseph Matthews offers some interesting insight about Kemper's mother. Now, I'm not sure where he gets his info, but but I like the thought. This is what really made me kind of start to lean back more towards the uh, the nature side of him being just evil. He posts, his sister said his mother was a saint who was never abusive. Coworkers said she was a pillar of the community and had a vibrant social life and a network of friends. Only Ed ever said she was abusive. Almost as though he might be a psychopath that perceives even the tiniest criticism as a great injustice. Anyone consider that? She never sexually or physically abused him. Stop falling for his lies and use your brains. She only started locking him in his bedroom in the basement after he molested his sisters. That's a pretty reasonable response in context, wouldn't you think? And I don't know if he did that, but he's referring to something I couldn't find. When you study violent offenders, you have to also take into consideration the family's opinions because psychopaths cannot accept responsibility. I do love that exactly, Joseph. You can't trust what he says. He, he, by nature, is a master manipulator. He's a fucking psychopath with a genius IQ. He's really good at manipulating. He manipulated those psychiatrists, the state facility, into letting him out. He manipulated girl after girl into getting into the car with him. You know, I imagine he manipulated, you know, uh, probably those FBI profilers as well. And he's manipulating, you know, uh, people to this day 
through his uh, through his you know videos that are out on on YouTube. Uh, and I'll get to that in a second with some other idiot at the internet comments about how people like seem to really like this guy still. User ho- user hostile narwhal uh, did what I expected to happen, um, but it still it still made me laugh. He puts the inappropriate uh, joke ball right on the T, posting "I want to get into his head," and then user Sp- Spinata Dentro takes a swing, saying that's what he said about his victims. Hashtag too soon. Uh, the Joker swings too, saying like he wanted to get into his mother's head. Andrew Durham punches up to Joker's attempt a little bit, posting hopefully not as deep as he got into his mother's head. And then Chuck Bradford closes it out with, he wants in your head too. Uh-huh. <laughs> Cynthia Snowden harmlessly posts. This just shows how gross some people are. All she posts is, uh, Iko Koo, my friend, was the one who let him back into the car. And then Bella Sweetie Pie replies with, are you, sh- uh, oh, replies with, you sure seem to want the whole world to know she was your friend. Are you not getting enough inten- attention in your life? Wow, Bella, uh, you don't seem sweet at all. You don't seem like a sweetie pie. You seem like a shithead pie. Uh, you sure want the whole world to know that you're an outspoken fucking asshole who needlessly attacks somebody who may have actually lost their friend to a serial killer. Are you not getting enough attention in your life, Bella sweetie pie? And then a lot of the comments on the YouTube video are just very positive towards Ed Kemper. He's so good at getting people to like him. They talk about how intelligent, interesting, charming, and likable he seems. Talk about he seems like a good... A lot of comments take this angle of he seems like a good guy that just got screwed over by his mom. Uh, I don't like it, and neither does user Kabir or Akai who posts, the people sympathizing with him are some of the most naive dumbasses in today's generation. It's sad. Oh, he's so interesting and intelligent. I kind of understand where he's coming from. It's his mom's fault. I wish I could move away to another galaxy. And then one of the people he, he clearly is mocking, I dead, I dead ass had a dream B, replies with, kill yourself and you won't have to be around anymore to hear these people. Okay. Okay, well, if we're going to go there uh, and throw that on the table, you could also kill yourself, dream B, and then you wouldn't have to be around uh, people like people like him who think rationally, people who don't like your, your fucking shitty uh, view of the world. I mean, again, if you're just going to throw Susan on the table, another option to consider. You, you could also do that. He was a piece of shit, Dream B. Ed Kemper, Ed Kemper was not a victim. Uh, I hope he dies soon. He has lived far too long already. Idiots of the internet. internet. All right, before a few final thoughts on Kemper, I want to share some of his most memorable quotes. Uh, I mean, again, dude is a monster, but he's an interesting monster. He has some very memorable quotes. Oh, this one, he says, one side of me says, and he's referring to like what he thinks when he sees a girl. (laughs) One side of me says, I'd like to talk to her, date her. The other side of me says, I wonder what her head would look like on a stick. (laughs) Uh, He says also, I remember there was actually a sexual thrill. You hear that little pop and pull their heads off and hold their heads up by the hair, whipping their heads off their body sitting there. That'd get me off. That is so fucking terrifying. He also says, uh, if I killed them, you know, they couldn't reject me as a man. It was more of less making a doll out of a human being and carrying out my fantasies with a doll, a living human doll. I think we heard a part of that one before. But yeah, with, you know, with Ed Kemper's story, I kept thinking about his brief stay in his psychiatric hospital when he was young. I mean, I mean, yes, he was admitted when he was just a kid, but he wasn't like a six-year-old kid. He was a few months away from turning 16. He killed both grandparents. 
two people who didn't have to take him into their home, two people who didn't physically abuse him, two people who may have not have even everly verbally abused him. He kills one to see what it feels like. He kills the other to not get caught. Should someone like that ever, ever be let out again? I would love to see some stats on the amount of times someone like that has been released from prison or released from psychiatric care and and know what the recidivism rate is. Like, has anyone ever done something that heinous, then been released, and then just, you know, been fine? Then just, you know, lived a long life, you know, outside of incarceration, never doing anything horrible again. Has that, like, ever happened? Uh, has that ever happened to somebody young and still uh, formidable? Like, like one thing to release a murder when they're 85 and they can't get around too well to kill. Different when they're 21. If it happens all the time, then I guess I may have to think my thoughts on rehabilitation. Currently, I think there are limits on, on what you can come back from. Uh, certain crimes, thefts, you know, like like barroom brawl type of assault, uh, arson. I'm sure plenty of other crimes I'm not thinking of right now. Uh, I, I'm sure you can, you can mend the error of your ways, you know, and come back. I know I know you can. But but when you murder your grandparents, that's crossing such a different line in cold blood, no less. I don't I don't think you come back from that. Uh, and, and this is I'm not even talking about should you be able to to like should you have the option of coming back from that? I'm just like, is it actually possible? Um, you know, could, could you kill a stranger, cut their head off, literally fuck their head, and then ten years later just be you know uh, working at Jamba Juice, enjoying your life? not being a threat to anybody. I just don't see that as a possibility. I actually ended up Googling, can a serial killer be rehabilitated? And the first link that popped up was a Psychology Today article posted on August 11th, 2014 that says psychopathic criminals cannot be cured. Scott A. Bond, PhD professor of criminology writes, contrary to popular belief, psychopaths are not considered to be mentally ill. Uh, the fifth edition of the Diagnostics and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, DSM-5, released by the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, lists psychopathy under the heading of antisocial personality disorders. Key traits of the psychopath include a disregard for laws and social mores, a disregard for the rights of others, a failure to feel remorse or guilt, a tendency to display violent behavior. Psychopathy is a personality disorder that is exhibited by people who employ a combination of charm, manipulation, intimidation, sometimes uh, violence to control others in order to satisfy their own selfish desires. Man describes Ed Kemper to a T. It is estimated that approximately 1% of the adult male population in the U.S. are psychopaths, which is fucking scary. Men are more likely than women to be psychopaths. And then it says, can, a, can psychopathy be cured? According to mental health experts, the short answer to the question is no. Dr. Nigel Blackwood, a leading forensic psychiatrist at King's College in London, has stated that adult psychopaths can be treated or managed, but not cured. So basically, like when they're incarcerated, you can use like incentives like, hey, if you're good, you get a fucking TV to watch every once in a while to get them to, uh, you know, uh, you know, modify their behavior. But if you put them back out into the wild, you know, when they're not supervised, they're going to go fucking bananas again. Uh, Blackwood explains that psychopaths do not fear the pain of punishment. They are not bothered by social stigmatization. Psychopaths are indifferent to the expectations of society, reject its condemnation of their criminal behavior. According to Blackwood and others, callous and unemotional psychopaths simply do not respond to punishment the way the rest of us do. Consequently, adult psychopaths in prison are much harder to reform or rehabilitate than other criminals with milder or no antisocial personality disorders. And then other things I found said that they cannot be rehabilitated. So there you go. They cannot be cured, not in any, any way that we currently know how, know of. So can we please stop giving monsters like this piece of shit the option of parole ever? I mean, I'd like to have them killed, but short of that, can we at least make sure uh, they can never, ever get out? 
Oh, man, I wish, I, not that he would care, but I wish I could uh, say that to Kemper. Not that he would care, though. I strongly disagree with your statement. You're sounding a lot like mother. Man, you're getting my zapples riled and in a tizzy. I wish I could cut your head off and make sex with it to teach you to be more tolerant. Uh, time now for top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, serial killer Ed Kemper killed 10 people between 1964 and 1973. Killed his grandparents in 1964. Uh, killed six hitchhikers, mostly co-eds, and then his mother and mother's best friend in 1972 and early 1973. Number two, uh, Kemper, a huge man, adds a level of terror to him, another level of terror. 6'9", and before he was caught, uh, around, what, 280 pounds and strong, incredibly physically intimidating killer. Number three, smart guy. His IQ, despite never going beyond community college and very little of that, was tested as high at 145, the genius level. Uh, early, uh, number four, number four is early FBI profiler spent a tremendous amount of time with Ed Kemper. Uh, studying the association between uh, serial killers and childhood sadism. Uh, that association uh, you know, of cruelty to animal with serial killers largely comes from early talks with Ed Kemper. And number five, new info. The second episode of the hit Netflix series, Mindhunter, largely about Ed Kemper. And from, from what I hear, it's a very accurate portrayal that features a scene where FBI agents try not to vomit when Ed talks about how pleasurable it is to fuck someone's head. So if you haven't gotten your fill of head fucking, uh, you know, I don't know. Go, uh, go check it out. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Kemper has been sucked. Man, maybe, just maybe, if we would have gotten, uh, you know, if he would have actually gotten his little ween sucked a little more often as a young man, maybe he wouldn't have fallen into head sex. Uh, nah, I doubt it. I doubt it. I, th- I think once you put a cat head on a stick and prayed it around, I, th- I think your fate is sealed in some form. Uh, thank you to the Time Suck team. Thanks to the Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins. Man, does she allow me uh, the time I need to do these episodes. Takes a team, takes a takes a village in a way to do this podcast, and she's she's number number one teammate. Uh, also, thanks to Kyler Monroe for being cool with Dad working on this so much, and, and I hope you don't uh, hear this for a long time uh, because I, I'd rather you not listen to this one. Uh, th- thanks to High Priestess of the Suck, Harmony Bellacamp, Jesse Guardian of Grammar Dobner, Reverend Doctor Joe Paisley, Time Suck High Priest Alex Dugan. The guy's a bit elixir, danger brain, axes apparel, knowledge ninja, Heather Rylander for another great episode. And thanks to all of you who listen and allow us to transition this from just a podcast to a really kick-ass community that does so much. Have you joined the community? Have you joined the Cult of the Curious private Facebook uh, group yet? It's the easiest cult to be a member of. I have not yet tried to fuck a single member of the cult uh, other than my wife, and I probably don't try uh, hard enough with her. Need to get more free time. Lucifina. There are 6,000 time suckers in the private Cult of the Curious group on Facebook. You can join Discord as well if that's your preference or, you know, if you just, just want to do that one. Over 1,000 Discord members now. Link to the Discord chat room messaging app uh, right in the Time Suck app. Uh, link to the private Facebook group and to, and to the Discord channel in today's episode description as well. Uh, next up on the suck docket is the legend of Mothman. November 12th, 1966 in West Virginia, five grave diggers working in a cemetery noticed something that they described as a brown human being flew over their heads. It's kind of crazy. There was five of them noticed this gliding from tree to tree. This is the first reported sighting of what would come to be known as the Mothman, uh, an elusive creature that, although now widely celebrated by the town at once terrorized, remains as mysterious as it was on the night that first frightened few witnesses laid eyes upon it. 
Three days after that initial report, in nearby Point Pleasant, West Virginia, two couples noticed a white-winged creature about six or seven feet tall standing in front of the car they were all seated in. Some believe the Mothman is a harbinger of doom, and seeing him spells uh, disaster, imminent disaster. Uh, I think maybe the Mothman is a harbinger of kick-ass idiots of the internet comments, because we're going to have a fucking gold mine on that episode. I predict that now. Uh, okay, so now let's see what the cult of, that's next Monday, now let's see what the cult of the curious has to say right now in today's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. Another D.B. Cooper update from Eric R. Ebel. Uh, had to prep and record this one before Cleopatra even came out. So obviously no Cleopatra updates yet. I'm, I'm, I'm sure a lot of pronunciation updates are coming with that one. That episode was a real, that was a real mouth battle I had. Uh, I've been listening to your podcast. Oh, sorry. Eric says, I've been listening to your podcast pretty much nonstop since your Tacoma Comedy Club date last fall. You may, you might remember me. I was the one who asked a lot of questions about your Idaho tattoo. Oh, yeah. And uh, how I wanted one of Washington in the same place. Uh, yeah, I do remember that. Frankly, I've been a fan of your stand-up for years, but for some reason, I didn't even realize you had a podcast. Now I'm hooked. I know I got to advertise it more, which I will be doing this year. Uh, during each episode, I think of something you write uh, to write you about, but it's gone by the time the episode ends. This time, however, I remembered. I just listened to your D.B. Cooper episode and wanted to let you know that Cooper asked for four parachutes, not two. I used to work for the Washington State Historical Society, and we had an exhibit about Cooper in 2013. In fact, one of the actual shoots is in our permanent collection. You can see it at, and then list the uh, link, which will be in the notes, the show notes on the uh, app and website for the episode that you can link to. If you're listening, uh, the four shoots were provided by a local business, as you said, and were kept in an FBI evidence lockup all these years. When they recently closed the case officially, the gentleman who owned the shoot business back in 1971 contacted them and actually asked to have his parachutes back. And they complied, giving him the three remaining shoots. He then donated one to the Washington State Historical Society, and we've displayed it publicly from time to time at the museum. I hope you get a chance to check it out next time you have a gig in Tacoma. Also, after the Cooper episode, I went to the Aleister Crowley episode and immediately heard you talking about name changes. And that your middle name is Brent, Daniel Brent Cummins, D.B. Cummins, D.B. Cooper Pooper, coincidence, you decide. I did, yeah, my initials are D.B., that's true. I didn't even put that together. Uh, keep on sucking. And if you can mention my website, I'd be eternally grateful. I have a passion for discovering and sharing the history, heritage, and culture of Washington State through my blog, videos, and podcasts. There's a GoFundMe drive on the site as well as I'm trying to raise money for creating entertaining educational videos that we could give to history teachers across Washington. Sincerely, Eric R. Ebel. I love how you put that's Ebel, mushmouth. And then WashingtonRHome.com. Well, thank you, Eric. You know, I really appreciate you clearing up that two versus four backpacks. Not joking, because I kept going back and forth. I had it as four for a while. I had it two for a while. Then it back as four. Went back to two. Several sources said two. Some said four. Some said two packs of shoots, like a like a, and then each pair kind of had two different shoots, like a, a one over your back and one that kind of went around your waist. Very confusing. Uh, thankful to have so many smart listeners like yourself be able to fill in these holes. And your website is awesome. Good, good for you for preserving local history. It's a very comprehensive website. That website, the link is also in today's notes. If if anybody wants to check it out, yeah, awesome website. Good for you, man, for uh, preserving history. And I, and I got your other Washington suck topics as well. You keep on sucking, my friend. Uh, cool information update coming in from Kevin Duquette. Says, hey, Dan, was listening to the Pinkerton episode, which I recognize is over a month old. Apologies if someone's already made you aware. They have, but I didn't share it in an update. So thank you. You mentioned not being able to get uh, to an article because of a paywall. 60 bucks for 24-hour access to one article. Wanted to let you know about SciHub. It's a great way to get around unnecessary paywalls. 
might help you with some research. All you need to do is input the articles DOI. Thanks for the great podcast. See you in Bridgeport next week. I will see you, Kevin, in Bridgeport. Thank you. Uh, the link to the service uh, you talk about, I guess by the time you hear this, I may, yeah, I may have already, uh, I guess, I think Bridgeport's coming up when you hear this. Uh, the URL eventually becomes unpaywall.org. Uh, and that'll be the link to that is also in today's show notes on the app and website. If anyone wants to use it. And from everything I can tell, this unpaywall.org uh, is legal. Its fact page says, yes, we harvest content from legal sources, including repositories run by universities, governments, scholarly societies, as well as open content hosted by publishers themselves. And I've had other time suckers write in and say that the authors of these studies, if, there were, if they were going to get paid, have already been paid. So you're not taking money out of their pockets by using that. So yeah, for doing your research, any of you researchers out there, unpaywall.org. I have not, full disclosure, I have not yet tried to use it it does seem like a, a, a very usable and, and interesting site that could be very helpful. Now a question about why I don't do other podcasts very often. Coming in from uh, Time Sucker Kevin Fitzmorris, who writes, so throw me on the fucking cross. <laughs> but my question is, every time you do a Time Suck, the Time Sucks itself. Oh, when I did that one yourself, you never really explain why you don't do more podcasts outside your own. I search all the time looking for my boy, Dan Cummins, another podcast, hoping you'd expand your podcast and my like of other podcasts by slamming verbiage on said podcast. When you came to Sacramento, May of 18, I definitely fanboyed uh, on the Machine podcast with Burt Kreischer instead of telling you how much I loved your own podcast because that was the last one I heard. I know he would book you out if you just asked whenever you're in LA. I think you should be doing other podcasts like your mom's house, Joe Rogan. I loved Kreischer's podcast. He seemed like a pretty chill fella. Sorry if I came across aggressive. I'm just a huge fan, have been since 09. It's just, I'm just an overbearing fan. I feel like I have questions that need answered because I have no boundaries when it comes to celebrities. I dig your style. Keep on keeping on. My dude, Hail Nimrod, P.S. Caligula was my favorite ep. Uh, I dig the guest feature. For what it's worth, I'm a little hammered. <laughs> Please excuse the countless manic rambling and grammatical errors. Well, thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. I, I appreciate what you're saying. You know, the reason is a combination that I don't do a lot of other podcasts, combination of time and location. Living in Idaho, not a lot of other, not a lot of other podcasts to be on. Obviously, around here, uh, you know, podcasts with you know bigger comedic audiences. Then when I'm in LA or New York City, I just I have had so many other things to do lately that there's not a lot of time to do other podcasts. I keep meaning to reach out to more. I'm sure I will uh, reach out more eventually, and, and and hopefully we'll do more soon. I I did have a manager that was reaching out to to Rogan and just couldn't get on. So I have tried Rogan. And, uh, and I do feel like I'll get on there eventually. I feel like the opportunity will just come up organically eventually. Right now, I just uh, have too many things I'm focusing on doing here. And, uh, you know, with the podcast, stand-up life, other behind-the-scenes things. But, yeah, thank you for the interest. Now, an anonymous thank you message coming in from who the hell knows? They're anonymous. Saying, hello, Dan, and everybody in the Time Suck family and crew. I know my name is in the email address, but if you choose to share this, I would prefer to be kept anonymous. Did it? Uh, I listened to the DB Cooper suck, and at the end, there were a few suckers that brought up their uh, that brought up their own or their friend's mental illness. It convinced me to share my hopefully short story of how this podcast has helped me. It, it is going to be short. Uh, I have had my own issues and started escaping from my own thoughts using comedy. That brought me to the comedy to your conversation on Pandora. You became an instant favorite while listening to your station. An ad for Time Suck came up. I've been hooked ever since. Now podcasts are my only new form of escape from my brain, but my escape. Uh, from my comfort zone. You have voiced many times about people who are wishy-washy with their lives and who can't make decisions. I began to realize that's who I was. I've been making excuses for myself about my life not going how I wanted. I now realize it's up to me to change the future. Yes, that is true. 
since I can't change the past. When I find myself making excuses, I think, what would Dan Cummins say? Uh, you and all those who make this podcast run have motivated me to go forth with something I've put off for a while, joining the military. Thank you to everyone in the Time Suck community, and especially thank you, Dan, for helping me regain my ambition. Keep on fucking sucking. Thank you for your upcoming service, Anonymous Sucker, man. Happy that you're chasing your dreams, man. Go out there, kick some ass. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Following what you're passionate about. Hail Nimrod, my friend. And then finally, interesting email from Corey Bell. Great reminder that words matter. Words matter. The words we put out there into the uh, universe. Uh, and that restraint can be good. Sometimes escalating the situation, just not worth it. Uh, Corey writes, hey, Master Sucker. First off, I appreciate everything you do. Although sometimes you talk about some intense and horrible things. You know how to bring happiness to listeners and tell a great story. It was an intense one today, man. I wanted to tell my own story in which you uh, have impacted me a lot. I have an infant and a three-year-old who are my world. One day, we're at the library with my wife and checking out books. My sons and I decided to go to our car early while my wife is finishing up. We walked to our car. I opened the door. It is important to understand I had our one-year-old in my arms and was holding my three-year-old's hand. I let go of my three-year-old's hand and opened the door. When this happened, he started to run into the parking lot. He had not been listening, which I'm sure you understand. Yeah, three-year-olds like herding cats. And it was a stressful day. I let the door go and it tapped the car beside me. I got my son and put both of them in the car. I had not noticed, but there was an older lady that was in the car. She got out and I told her I was sorry for letting that happen. Explain the situation. We shut my door and about two, three centimeters of paint had chipped off her car. Knowing this was totally my fault, I apologized and offered my insurance. I wanted to take responsibility, even though it was not malicious or on purpose. The lady declined my insurance, but then started pacing behind her car. I asked again if she wanted my insurance, and she said no. But the next couple of sentences that came out of her mouth were astonishing. She stated that my son, who was still three years old, because only about two minutes it went by, <laughs> should not only know better, but should have more responsibility to hold the door open or not run. She then stated that I should teach him better to not damage people's cars. The fire of Lucifina was raging in my eyes and heart. I glared at her, a glare that might send Bojangles hiding under the dinner table. While this was happening, a voice came into my head. It was you, Grandmaster Sucker, stating, you have so much more to lose than others. I remember the episode when you got on a tangent about how we react to situations when other people are being asshats. I took a deep breath, listened to the voice, knew I had so much more to lose and this old lady ever will. <laughs> I asked her a second time if she wanted my insurance and she declined. Oh yes, that's for like a third time actually, but still stood there. At this point, my wife came out and the lady started to lecture her, which my wife did not back down asking if she had kids and can you not give grace to a three-year-old and father trying to get his kids into the car. The lady continuously stated that I should be a better father and learn, although I have offered our insurance three different times. I asked a final time. She declined again. I told her this conversation was over and she scurried into the library. I know this probably sounds like a silly little story, but after thinking about it, I can honestly say that your words mean more than you know. You are a person that said we have more to lose than others, and I truly have been seen that in this situation, or truly saw that in this situation. I had more to lose. I did what I thought was right by trying to take a responsibility. It was declined, but sometimes people still want to be assholes. If anything, I just wanted to share this story to show that even little tangents during a show have meaning and to keep up the great work. Ah, oh, man, thank you, Corey. Uh, thank Good call, man. Good call. I love how you handled all of that. Uh, I know how tempting it can be just to fucking rip somebody a new one for being an asshat. I think about it literally every single fucking day. But sometimes, it, a lot of the times, most of the time probably, probably the overwhelming majority of the time, it's just not worth it, you know? At her age, odds are, she, she's not going to stop being an asshat. You know, the lecture isn't going to make you be like, you know what? I should fucking, it's 65 or 70, whatever. I should just transform myself into an entirely new person. 
uh, you know, but you also stood your ground. I think that's great. You know, I mean, if she would have went crazy and like called your kid a racial slur or some equally offensive slur, then I say, you know, you know, fucking let it rip on that bitch. You know, say all kinds of crazy stuff. But yeah, generally not worth it. Um, I was actually, uh, I actually had some restraint myself. This uh, would have been a week and a half ago now. Is with the kids at what was supposed to be an all ages, Kyler Monroe, all ages outdoor pool situation that had been advertised as being like you know, family time. We were there during quote unquote family hours. Uh, we get there. It's a drunken shit show with people literally falling down drunk, uh, tiny ass bikinis, yelling all kinds of profane sexual shit, just stupid shit, like a bunch of just dirtbag fucking degenerates. And I, and I get it if you're going to act that way. If it's like an inclusive kind of adults only situation, but like, man, fucking kids around you piece of shit. I wanted to go off. I knew they were so drunk. It didn't matter. So I did go off on the staff. Uh, I definitely let a lot of profanities fly. And I was like, what the fuck are you guys doing here? How is no one talking to these people? What kind of shit show are you assholes running? I was very angry. I was like, I want my fucking money back. And, and they backed down immediately. I went into apology mode. But I'm like, you're not even talking to people. I was very upset. Uh, Kyler then asked if I was going to talk to this one drunk couple. Like this guy was probably, I don't know, 65. He's falling down drunk. And I think he knows my sense of humor. He wanted, he wanted to kind of like, we were laughing at him and he wanted me to interact further. And I was like, dude, just no, just be quiet. There is no point in going there. It is not worth, uh, interacting, escalating. And then all of a sudden your dad is going to jail for beating the shit out of a 65 year old drunk fuck. Uh, yes. Restraint can be a very good thing. You know, Kyler Monroe and I, we went back, went back to this hotel where Lindsay and I, we were all staying. Uh, she was gonna st- trying to be there too, but there's a long story. It was a mess and she couldn't even get there. It was a mess. Uh, and you know what? The police didn't need to be called. We joked about it. We calmed down. We, we had a laugh about it half an hour later. And, uh, you know, no one got in any trouble and life went on. So yes, yes, restraint's good. Good job, man. Thanks for all the time sucker updates, everybody. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. That's all for today, time suckers. Hail Nimrods. Don't kill anyone this week. Don't kill anyone this week. Focus on that. Uh, if for some reason you do end up killing someone, please don't fuck their head or neck. And, uh, you know, keep on sucking. <laughs> Mother's tomfoolery makes me want to fuck some necks. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org lost. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.